It's time for Dopey. And I'm gonna sing a song for you. Damn, Chris gonna show you a thing or two. This episode of Dopey is sponsored by Oral Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California, created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to help treat drug addiction and alcoholism with connection and compassion rather than control. If you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, the treatment would be off the hook, as they say. Everyone that we know that has been there can't shut up about what an incredible experience it was. They make sure that your stay there is comfortable. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as it possibly can be. They have amenities like surfing, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and so much more. They make the detox as easy as possible, and they treat you like a person. So if you're fucked and you're living wherever you're living, but you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, go check them out at oralrecovery.com and go check it out. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Your Sober Buddy. Your Sober Buddy is a sober app. It is a sober community, but it is so much more than that. It is people getting sober together. It is a beautiful thing. Every Wednesday morning, we have a group, a Zoom meeting with Sober Buddy folks, and every meeting, it, 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 it really affects me. I get all choked up when I think about it because these Zoom meetings are actually affecting me. The group that I have on Wednesdays are incredibly tight-knit. There's groups every day. Every weekday they have groups, and they have weekend hangouts too. They also have a social media-type app, and they have uh, challenges and a sober tracker, and it's less than the cost of like two iced coffees a month, and if you're really cheap, you can sign up for the free trial. Go to YourSoberBuddy.com or check them out at the App Store or the Google Play Store. Your Sober Buddy is a happening resource. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Eric Gray and the good people of Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, your payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. And perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use the promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com and you will receive special discounts. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by The Phoenix. 
The Phoenix is an incredible free app for sober and sober curious people looking to meet up with other sober and sober curious people. Basically, the Phoenix believes that having fun is a cornerstone of recovery. And I believe that too. And the Phoenix offers activities, classes, pickleball, hikes, music, art. I've met a ton of people from the Phoenix and they are so positive and they are so committed to helping people. If you're looking to have fun in your recovery, check them out at thephoenix.org. Every event is totally free. The only sign-up cost is 48 hours of clean or sober time. So check them out at thephoenix.org. They are a movement. Join the movement. Check out The Phoenix. All right, enough with these ads. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I am podcasting from my father's opulent lake house upstate. And his chair is so fucking creaky, it's making me crazy. So we're up at the top of the stairs at my dad's house. Uh, My dad is losing his marbles. And, And I'm inviting him to come on the show because he's so frazzled, and I think that we need to make him happy. I want to say this, Dad. It's not completely your fault I was on heroin for so long. Oh, really? It's not completely your fault. I think you were a wonderful father, very caring. He spent last night blaming me for everything. That was this morning. It's not all your fault. I know that you're very frazzled. Are you okay? I'm fine. Yes, yes. Okay, you ready for the story that I need to tell you? Because I think it's going to make you feel good. Oh, good. That would be wonderful. Today... Nora, your granddaughter, and I drive out to Manchester, Vermont, to take in the outlets and the and the and nature. We we walked along a river there, and we come back from the river walk, and we're about to go to the outlets, and I see this store. Hold on, Nora, come here. I think Nora should be in on this story, even though Linda probably doesn't want her on the show. I would like her to be in on the story. And Nora's never been on the show, so this is a big moment in in dopey history. And if no one's ever listened to the show before, we don't usually do it like this. Normally the show is just about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Normally my dad and my daughter are not on the opening of the show, but we are upstate at my dad's opulent lake house. Nora, would you like to say hello? Hello, don't Okay, so (laughs) me and Nora are in Manchester, in Manchester, Vermont, we did the river walk. Nora wanted us to, you know, she Nora's a, a big time collector of hoodies and, and clothing. And we were yes. gonna go buy hoodies and clothing and we went we see a sign for the Vermont Flannel Company. Right? Yes. So tell my tell grandpa and the dopey nation what happened when we went upstairs. Yeah. So we walk into the Vermont flannel place and it was really cool also so if you're in that area you should totally go but yeah we shout out to the vermont flannel company yeah so we walk in and i'm just looking at some pajama pants and it looks super good and then all of a sudden this lady was like um like hi like um are you dave in manheim or are you dave wow and and then and he was like yes i am and then 
<laughs> and then she was like, oh my gosh, I'm such a big fan. Like, you've really helped me a lot. Oh, boy. And it was really cool. Amazing. Oh, that's very wonderful. And Nora was shook. And then... And I her, was so shook. And her name told. is Sita. And she's... She was so nice. She was very nice. She's, she's sent in emails before. And Nora, did you feel for a second like maybe your father was famous? No. And then, and then what? And it then, was cool though. And then, yeah, no. it was super cool. And then we leave there, and we go to, and we go to Ralph Lauren, and we, and what we're, did you think was gonna happen? We're both like expecting like the cashier to be like David Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, nobody said anything, but like we, we got our, we got hyped up. But it was cool. Yes. All right. Thank you, Nora. Goodbye. And I got a Gap hoodie and a Vineyard Vines T-shirt. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. Have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. So what do you think about that, huh? No, it's very nice. It's, a, it's about time that you finally found somebody that recognized you, and it wasn't in New York City. Well, that's the second time I've ever been recognized, and with Nora there, it felt very uh, impressive. Yeah, impressing my granddaughter. And then we went and we had Thai food, and she had her first Pad CU, which was very good. Have you ever had Pad CU? It's a delicious noodle dish. It's like Pad Thai, no? No, it is not. It's no. It's, it's not, not like Pad Thai. It's different. Now, is there anything you want to share with the Dopey Nation before you go get us dinner? Uh, no, just, you know, stay healthy, everybody. Oh, how about the latest news on Othello Cookie? We will fill you in on the Othello at the end of the show, but you need to get, you need to pick up the food. We're running okay, out of time. Okay, stay strong, everybody. All right. I, you know, maybe that was a little gratuitous. Everybody's gone. I just want to say, uh, Sita, if you're listening, thank you for being there and recognizing me and impressing Nora and... You know, I, I feel really good that the show is uh is on the grow. It's it's incredibly cool. And Dopey Day is coming up and we celebrate Dopey Day, uh, which is Chris's birthday, which is August sixteenth. And we celebrate Dopey Day by putting the Dopey logo over our eyes in honor of Chris's birthday. It's Christmas on Dopey Day, it's solidarity with addicts. It's um it's a movement. If you guys want to be in on the Dopey Day Street Team, send me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. We would love all the help that we could get if you're into it. And everybody's gone. I just want to say one thing. It's like as a drug addict in recovery who, you know, ruined my life for so long to be able to bring my daughter to Manchester, Vermont and buy her stuff is like, it, it's not lost on me. Like, I'm crazy. Like, I have a lot of gratitude to be able to do that. And to walk, I mean, the flannel company was ridiculously expensive. We were looking for deals, and it was like serious, seriously high-quality flannel. But still, to spend the day with her and to be able to buy her stuff and, and have this sober life, it's it's um, it's amazing. And... um. It wasn't always that way when she was a kid. I was I was still high. So I just want to share that, that there's hope for all of us. All right, I want to read this email. Enough, enough me being so emotional. Hi, Dave. My name is Dave as well. I'm from England, and I've been a dopey listener since the beginning. And can I just start off saying you're doing a fantastic job and you're really helping people, especially me? I listen to your podcast all the time because I'm such a druggie. It makes me feel like I'm just hanging out with my mates saying that I've lost so many friends over the years. RIP to Chris. I'm so sorry for your loss. I feel like I know him so much and can relate to him as well. 
as I too am a bit crazy in what I've taken in the past, and I'm actually quite lucky to be alive. At the moment, I'm prescribed 160 milligrams of oxys and 100 milligrams of uh, oxys long tech and 100 milligrams of oxys short tech and 900 milligrams of pregabalin. I don't know what any of this stuff is, plus a whole lot of other medication a day. I get prescribed a month's worth at a time, which doesn't last me half the month. I've been taking all this since 2012. I was a raging alcoholic all my life until I was put into intensive care with my organs failing and my wife and kids being told I wouldn't make it, but somehow I managed to pull through. I was told if I ever drink again, it will kill me, and since then, I've obviously become addicted to pain pills, and as everyone knows, when you run out, it was straight to heroin and crack. I try to limit the amount I take when I've got my prescription, but I go through my pills in half the time. So each month I've got roughly two weeks where it's straight heroin and crack and I'm getting really worried. I'm going to OD one day and the wife and kids are going to get home from work and school and find me dead. I'm on episode 411 and you say if anyone needs Narcan and fentanyl test strips to email and you'll send some out. I don't know if you'll be able to send some out into the UK or not. Jesus Christ, Dave. The UK, it's pricey. I wonder if they'll intercept it in customs. But if you could, I'd really appreciate it. I've tried everywhere I can I can to get some, uh, but I can't find any. I can't go and ask my doctor because they will stop my medication prescription if I tell them I've got a problem and I'm on. He keeps writing H slash C, but he means heroin and crack as well as everything else I can get my hands on. Anyway, I hope you get this and I hear back from you. Keep up the great work and stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Dave. Yes, Dave. I need your address. I didn't write you back. I'm going to write you back. I need your address. I will ship it to England. If anyone in England or the UK knows where you can get Suboxone, Narcan, or fentanyl test strips, just let me know. Otherwise, Dave, I will ship you some. I'm going to write you back. Anyone that needs Narcan or fentanyl test strips, write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com, and I will ship some out. It takes a little bit of time. If you're waiting, email me again. Fuck it. We're doing a lot of shipping, so bear with me in the meantime. We have a beautiful show. We have a a, a very female-empowered show with two amazing women authors and members of the Dopey Nation One is Suki Jones. She wrote a book called See, Swallow Me. And um, she's at our Sober Buddy meeting. She's in Dopey Zoom. She she was at DopeyCon. She is a full-fledged Dopey Nation member. And her story is hardcore and heart-wrenching. And then after Suki, we are rejoined by strung-out author and unlicensed advice columnist, elite equestrian and other great things, Aaron Carr, and we're mourning the loss of her ex-boyfriend, and his name was Blackie Onassis. He was a drummer in an old 90s band called Urge Overkill, and we we reflect on Blackie. But before we get to Aaron or Suki, oh, also, this episode is serious trigger warning. There's a lot of talk about sexual abuse and incest. So if that is hard for you to take, you know, you are warned. You have to be warned, and we are warning you. But before we get into Suki and Aaron, I just need to say 
that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. And everybody needs help. Whether you're dealing with decisions around career or relationships or anything else, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Trusting yourself to make decisions that align with your values is like anything. You need practice, and the more practice you get, the easier it gets. Therapy helps you practice. Therapy is like a mirror to yourself so you can see what you're doing. It is super helpful for learning coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas or anything like that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. There's been so much stuff on Patreon lately. I just have to say it. I did a video for my dad's lake house this morning. Uh, there's been a just for today almost every day. There's been a lot of stuff. So, and if you're looking for a way to support the show, you go to patreon.com slash dopey podcast, join the Patreon world. We did a Patreon zoom. It was super fun. And the Patreon people get first dibs at DopeyCon tickets which are about to go on sale. DopeyCon is going to be in New York City on October 7th. There's going to be a lot of really cool stuff at DopeyCon. I'm very, very, very excited. It's going to be the, the dopiest DopeyCon yet, I think. I hope. So join Patreon and support the show. Ray was just on again. Aurora was on. Good times on Patreon. And before we get to Suki, I just want to say that this episode is also brought to you by Delete Me. And you might remember me telling you guys about my friend Alex last week who uncovered the shocking truth about the shady practices of data brokers and how he was enraged by the invasion of his privacy. So he took charge by having Delete Me's team of experts meticulously comb through the vast network of data brokers and remove Alex's personal information from their databases. Delete Me is dedicated to protecting online privacy by helping individuals like Alex remove personal information from data broker websites. By subscribing to Delete Me, you can regain control over your online presence and minimize the risk of your personal data being bought, sold, or misused. And if you are like me, you know how frustrating and scary it is to feel like you are being sold to the highest bidder. You provide the information you'd like deleted, and they do all the tough work to get your info removed. Delete Me monitors each site to make sure that your personal information stays gone. They also provide you with regular personalized privacy reports showing you what information they found and what they removed. In a world where personal data is constantly bought and sold, subscribing to Delete Me provides peace of mind and empowers you to take back control over your digital identity. Take control 
and take the step towards safeguarding personal information and preserving your online privacy. In this digital battle, Delete Me stands as a champion, empowering people like Alex to protect their personal information and reclaim their right to privacy. Use the offer code 20% off all consumer plans, Dopey, or use the vanity joindeleteme.com slash dopey. So if you're going to deleteme.com, you can put in the code dopey, or you can just type in joindeleteme.com slash dopey. Protect your identity by joining Delete Me today. And if you guys want to be on the show, send in a voicemail or an email. Make it dopey. Make it heart-wrenching. Let me know what's going on with you. Send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com, and I'll send you some socks. And I know somebody who got dopey socks. Her name is Suki Jones. She wrote a beautiful, heart-wrenching memoir called Sea Swallow Me. It is available on Amazon. Please check it out. And without further ado, here is Suki Jones. So we are at my father's house, and I'm with author and now deep member of the dopey community, Suki Jones. Suki wrote a book called Sea Swallow Me. It's right here. And she asked me to write a blurb for it. And it's the first thing I've ever blurbed, maybe the last. It's an honor. Welcome to my dad's house and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Would you say, because you listen to the show. I do. Would you say that the expectation of the apartment matches the apartment? I think it exceeds it. I, I'm like really excited to be here. Like I, I feel like really cozy here. Like it's, it's exciting to be here. It's a, it's a nice space. Now I'm going to tell you, you have to hold the mic closer. Oh, mouth. sorry. You have to. I feel comfortable enough with you to, to tell you you have to do that. <laughs> um, and Suki wrote a crazy book about her life. I did. And you've been unearthing your life with a lot of people. And it's like, this book is loaded with fucking serious trauma. It is. It's true. <laughs> and and like when you're going to do bookstore appearances or doing other podcasts and you unpack the trauma of your life, is it traumatic? It's not, it's not really. It was more traumatic writing about it than rehashing it during like an interview. Why? I think because when I was writing it, I I really had to envision that space and that time. So it was more like really feeling what it was like then so that I could accurately depict it in in my writing. So when I talk about it, like it's 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 almost like I'm reading it back. Like it's not as emotional to talk about it like after the fact as it was to write about it or to experience it the time that it happened so yeah it's I mean it is hard like I've had some people get really emotional talking to me about it which is an interest which is kind of an odd odd experience like I feel guilty a little bit like I'm like oh man like I'm kind of fucking them up you know or when people I give people the book and I'm like um enjoy it because <laughs> I'm like it's full of some rapey stuff and you know like it's it's kind of a weird thing to give it to people and be like i hope you like it but you know at the same time well i mean there's a lot of things to like about it i mean there's the trauma is painful but i think that there's a great 
pseudo misery loves company slash we've been through this. So if there's a we that has been through this, there's an us. And then that's really reassuring. That's how people feel better about a lot of different things. There's an awesome music component. There's a great pop culture component. There are things about this book that do feel really good. So it's okay to say, (laughs) enjoy it. I don't think you should feel guilty to say, enjoy it. So like, when you grew up in, in Nebraska, yes, and, and you're such a California person, do you identify Nebraskan? I do not. Like, I'm always conflicted when people are like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, I was born in Nebraska and I definitely have, I feel like I have Midwestern flavor. Like I'm, I'm super hospitable and friendly and, you know, so I have like some classic Midwestern you know, attributes, but I, I'm, my life was really, has been always California. Like I'm very Bay area. How old were you when you moved to the, to California? Uh, I was eight. And then there was some back and forth a little bit with my mom and dad where I was going back and forth and then a kidnapping attempt. And then that was it. <laughs> well, I want to talk about, cause your childhood, you know, had so much traumatic action your parents were uh tumultuous your father was nut a uh, nut yes. i mean the the nuttiest thing and i couldn't even believe i was reading it there's a lot of nutty stuff in this book but the fact that he was so interested in your ears yeah and i never even heard of such a thing as pinning back yeah. ears could you please explain that it, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it's when I think about it now, even it's bizarre because I didn't it wasn't something I was being teased about, like where kids were making fun of me or anything. But my dad got it in his head that my ears stuck out and he would not let it go. Like he just fixated on it. So that was like all he could think about because I mean, I think because he was an addict and an alcoholic and that was how he approached things. He fixated So once he decided that my ears were going to be pinned back, there was just no, no, not doing that. What do they have to do to do that? They had to put me under. And so how old? I think I was seven. I think it was the summer that I turned seven. And the night that they checked me into the hospital, uh, there was a tornado. So that was fun. And they served meatloaf. So which was my least favorite. Now you you can't eat meatloaf. (laughs) I actually every like time, it now. Every time you hear of a tornado, <laughs> your ears start to hurt. Yes, I get a twinge in the back of my ears. Um, yeah, so I'm in the hospital. My parents, you know, ch- check me in there. And and we had to, like, go into the hallway because there was a tornado. And then we eventually go back in and they serve me meatloaf. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, even as a little kid, I was like, this is not going well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was weird. It was a weird experience. And even weirder than the... But what do they have to do to do it? They, like, did something... I'm not exactly sure. They did something to the cartilage, and they... I, I assume it's kind of like what they do with dogs. Like, they stitched it down. Like, I think they nipped it, kind of. So I had these sutures behind my ears. but And the worst part of that was that it was summertime, and so my head was wrapped in gauze, like a mummy. Like, I have pictures of myself with this gauze. Crazy. Yeah, and so the the rumor was is that I had brain cancer, you know, so all the kids in the neighborhood were like, oh, like, you know, thought I was, like, ill. <laughs> what did your mother say? Like, because your mom and your your mom and dad obviously had their issues and, and 
the marriage ended. What did you, when your mom looked back on that, what did she say about it? Um, she, she was, she kind of glazed over that a little bit. I think probably because she probably just went along with it. There was a lot of my mom just kind of going along with things just to appease my dad and not make things any rockier than they already were. Or, you know, like if it was something like he's already decided that this is what's happening. So I'm not going to, upset the apple cart you know so paint the picture of of pre-divorce life in nebraska oh god it was um it was bad was it omaha (laughs) it was omaha yeah so my dad my dad was not home a lot he was like at the bar i mean like i'd see him in the morning like getting ready for school and like i'd see him at night and he was he was drunk he was loaded like sun up to sundown like all day just you know we had a full bar in the house and there was just always that smell of alcohol on him you know there, I could always just smell it kind of seeping through his skin he was very volatile so like I never knew like he was he was a prankster kind of and he told these great tall tales like he was a great storyteller very charismatic looked a little bit like Jim Jones. <laughs> like he was very like, you know, cult people, kind of, he was kind of culty and he had like a cult of personality. Like people really enjoyed my dad that didn't live with him, you know, because he was, he was a fun, like larger than life guy. Like he was a big, tall, you know, strapping guy that was, you know, friendly and. And your mom was in love with that. And my mom. Until yeah. she, until she got close. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think I think she thought that she could fix him. You know, I think that that was kind of the element all along was that she would fix it and we'd have this idyllic life. But, it, it you know, as any alcoholic knows, like the disease <laughs> progresses and gets more severe and the the consequences and the things involved with it become greater. And so things kept escalating, you know, like it was like where maybe my mom would be jealous. Then it went to him sleeping with like the golf pro or my school teacher or, you know, business associates. And, you know, he just, he had kind of a reputation for sleeping around and a temper. So yeah, it was, it was not, it was not fun. Like I wasn't comfortable bringing kids home because I didn't know which version of my dad they'd get. And, so. and, and his alcoholism was crazy and like you're saying, incredibly fiery and unpredictable. And when did the drugs enter the picture for him? The drugs, as far as I know, the drugs didn't enter the picture until he um, met the woman that would be his second wife. So he met this woman and she was a business associate. And I don't know how, but she had access to large amounts of pharmaceuticals. And I, I remember my mom telling me stories like when I was a teenager that someone had told her that that she was giving my dad, who was like 6'4", you know, like enough drugs to like knock him out for 24 hours. You know, like he'd just be out. So I think that's when it really started to pick up with was her. And then that relationship was kind of the tail end of my relationship with him because I had to eventually go testify against him in court. And he held that against me. Like he he blamed me for testifying against him and was, you know, like, kind of like, you're not my daughter anymore kind of thing. Like, I didn't talk to him for over a decade, well over a decade. Well, you're glossing over this kidnapping situation. Yes, the kidnapping. (laughs) 
<laughs> so what what tell the story so so i have family in in the appalachian area and they have a large farm i think they like to be called appalachian appalachian yes and they have you know i have various cousins and aunts and that sort of thing that all live on this huge farm and it was somewhere that we spent summers at when i was a kid we would drive there because my dad wouldn't fly <laughs> he had this thing about not flying um probably a control thing but who knows was he scared he, of dying? He, I don't know what about that. What was the that. thing? What was I don't know. Thing? He was weird. He, he had like weird kind of superstitious idiosyncrasy. Like he wouldn't, I don't, he didn't like elevators. He didn't, he wouldn't fly. Um, like he insists on driving everywhere. That's really interesting. I know this woman, She. Uh, she's like an Instagram influencer and she's terrified she refuses to use the bathroom on a plane. I remember she, you talking about that. Because she's scared she's going to get sucked out of the toilet. Yes. She won't go in elevators either. Oh, interesting. She, it's like, and she's an alcoholic. You yeah, know, she's, yeah. She's in recovery, but yeah. she's an alcoholic. And I bet you it's it's similar weird I control I bet it is. I, and I remember, I remember that episode because when I used the bathroom on the plane flying to New York, I thought about it. And I was like, wow. I, and I was thinking, like, could you actually get sucked in through here? No. No, that's a really deep imagination. Yes. I'm impressed with that imagination. Yeah. So, so tell me about the kidnapping. So the kidnapping, it, it didn't happen. But my dad was plotting. Well, my dad was plotting to kill my mother was what was happening. And he had apparently taken out a hit on my mom or, or was taking out a Why hit on Why did my he mom. want to kill her so bad? Because I think it's just because he was out of his mind like he was crazy right <laughs> i mean because you're not sane thinking you know what i think i'm gonna do today i think i'm gonna kill my wife but was it because he didn't have control over you i think maybe it was more him and this new girlfriend like maybe they were like we're gonna take her away from i don't, I don't know like i don't i'm just guessing but i think they probably thought that my mom was not necessary and that they could just have me because I think one of the factors for my dad not wanting to leave my mom was me. Of course. I think he wanted to, because even in a letter that I have from her to my dad, which may or may not be in my book, you know, she she details how, you know, I, I'm sure you want to go home to your daughter. And, and I think that was a factor for my dad that he, even though our relationship was not a good one, most of the time. I mean, we did have some good times, but like, I think that he didn't want to lose me. And so I think like taking my mom out of the equation seemed, especially if you're, you know, you would, need, you, would re you would really need him if your mother was dead. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. That was his logic. Imagine how much I'd love him yeah. if he killed my mother. Right. That would be, that's great alcoholic logic. Yeah, I totally. Love yeah. So, so yeah, that was the plan was to, from what I could gather was that he was, and from what my mom gathered after the fact was that he was planning on kidnapping me and taking me to this family farm. I mean, for how long? I don't know, because I'm sure they would have, you know, somebody would have found me. But so he began drugging me or he and my well, she wasn't my stepmother yet, but his girlfriend at the time started drugging me. So they were giving me like quaaludes and I was like eight, you know, and I was just out of it. How would you take them? They gave them to me like a pill, like, like she, I was told they were, I was told I had allergies and that I needed to take them and that they were like vitamins and that they took them too. 
And so, you know, like, I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, you, I, you don't like, as were a you kid, chewing them? Did you swallow I swallowed them? them. My dad was like, swallow, t- swallow it back. You know? So I was like, cause you know, I didn't disagree with my dad because that would get you in more trouble. <laughs> that was like, pun- you know, like punishment, like with the belt or his hand or, so I didn't disagree. I was just like, okay, that's what I'm going to do then. So I did. So, yeah. so quaaludes at eight. Yeah. And so walk us through that for a second. Yeah. I don't, I don't, re- I wish I remembered of more course. about it. Like no. I remember. So how the, do you the even, takeaway, how do you even put it together? So the way I put it fact. together was my mom got people. So I was trying to call my mother secretly, you know, so that my dad wouldn't know. And like, I was telling my mom things when I would call her and I told her, you know, they're having me take these pills. And I told her what they said on them. And she said, what's on the pill? I can't remember exactly, but I know I told her because when, when I did get back to California, like that's, they, I don't remember if it was her and a lawyer or I don't remember who told me like, oh, it's, it was quaaludes, you know, but my mom, even today, when she talks about when I came off the plane, when they, when they got me back to California and I came off the plane, my mom will tear up because she says I looked like a zombie. Right. So how, how did, uh, they get I'm you like, back? So that was fun. What, no, what was the, <laughs> what was the fucking like freeing you from kidnapping? Like, how did she, how'd you get free? Uh, there was a phone call. I know there was a phone call again. Like I was like eight. So I don't, so my, and my mom's like, you know, when I talk about it now, like she's, she's kind of blocked out some of it. So she was kind of piecing it together when we went through that. And so she got the law involved in California and was like, you know, and she had an attorney that she was working with that was in Omaha. And so they, I think, made a call to my dad and I think threatened him and were like, we know what you're up to. You got to send this girl back right now. Because I was over, you know, my time, my custody time with my dad had ended. So I should have been back in California and I wasn't. And so that night, like there, like a, my dad had like kind of a violent outburst and there was all kinds of ruckus in his house, like, you know, all kinds of chaos happening. And then he took off, like slammed the door and was like breaking things. And then his girlfriend took me to my grandparents' house to stay the night. So I didn't even stay last night there. I stayed at my grandparents' house. His parents. His parents. And then the next day I was on a plane back to California. And that was, that was the last time. Well, no, it wasn't the last time I saw him because I had to go back to California with my mother to testify against what him was in the court. court. What was the court case? Um, because he had been trying to get custody of me and my my mother you know and her attorney were like well he's trying to kidnap her and he also attempted to put a hit on her life you know so how did they find out about the hit um i don't know all the details about that like i know i know that while i was at school one day before the kidnapping episode before we had left omaha my dad had come and collected all his guns and then they had how many guns he had a lot of guns like i don't remember exactly but i I remember he had guns and and various types you know so he had collected his guns and then mutual friends of my mom's and my dad's had said to my mom you need to get out of omaha like this like he's he's gonna kill you right so yeah so my mom was like okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh, she called her parents uh, or she called her her dad 
who later ended up molesting me, but that's later in the story. Uh, she don't called, ruin the <laughs> story. Don't ruin the story. Don't give too much away. Um, so she called her dad and her brother, and they they came out with a rider truck, loaded us up, and we we went to to the Bay Area. Now, when you describe your upbringing, violent is often a word you use straight away. Yeah. And what was the violence? It was my dad would use like a leather belt on me and it wasn't like frequent. It wasn't frequent. Like he wasn't like hitting me every day, but it was the th- he was a he was a very big guy, you know, and and I was, you know, a little kid. So when you're little and you know that that's possible, li- that's possible. That is a possible consequence it's for anything home. that right. he can come like it didn't even have to be real like even if he thought i had done something that he didn't like or you know whatever he concocted i could get punished for it so um i was always on edge you know thinking like oh i might get the shit kicked out of the me shit today. kicked out of me for this yeah right, right or i might not or he might be in a fun mood and be putting confetti or water on the edge of the door when i open it like it was you never knew like he would set up these things like mouse, you know, the game mouse trap. Sure. Where it's all these pulleys and oh, levers. Oh, yeah. So I don't think there's da- any pulleys and levers. In <laughs> no, no, that's a different so. game. It's like that though. It's but like I, that. But I don't think there are any pulleys or levers. That's just my imagination. There's a boot. There's a stairs. There's a boot. There's, yes. a, there's a diving board. I don't remember there's the diving a, there's, board. Oh yeah, the diving board. Oh, no, it's uh, a teeter-totter, and the diving man is on one side. Wow, you remember way more about this well, game I than I played do. <laughs> Mousetrap with my, with my kid. Oh. I love Mousetrap. It's a fun game. It's an amazing game. Yeah. And when you're a kid, it seems like there's pulleys and stuff. Yes, yeah. But back to that. There's so a dad, wizard, magic curtains. There's no wizard. So your dad sets up. <laughs> there was up, a fairy. <laughs> he would set up. Can, he would set up these elaborate things. Like He would have a, like a radio turned on in across the room. And so you'd walk over to turn off the radio or, you know, like he just have these things set up where if you touch the dial, then this like um, domino effect of things would right. happen. Right. So, and it was, you know, funny. Or sometimes he'd put on like uh, he had this monkey or like ape costume, which was also <laughs> terrifying. Like it wasn't funny, but he was like laughing and drunk, you know. He had, he had an, a full gorilla costume. Yes, That's yeah, really, and he would chase really me in it. And like sometimes we had a laundry shoot in the house. Where, and why like, did he get it for Halloween or something? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. But I yeah. think gorilla costumes are terrifying, but also very funny yes. for some reason. But less funny when you're eight and being chased by a drunk gorilla. Oh, it's got to be. It's got to be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So, so your mom saves you. Yeah. Um, and then it's also interesting that she found you you know, under the influence of Quaaludes and that tattooed an image on her head. Yes. And then she saw that image throughout your teen years. Yes. And did did she register it? Well, okay. So my mom, bless her heart, is is pretty, like, please don't listen to this mom. She's very nice. She's very naive. about certain things like my mom like drinking was always acceptable growing up but my mom knows nothing about drugs nothing like she's never smoked pot in her life like did you get to do quaaludes later in life no you know i had a weird window in my life where i got to do quaaludes really and i don't know how i don't i don't remember i mean it's like there's so much about my life i don't remember but yeah. there was this quaalude window and they had numbers on them we called them lemons yes like yeah. it was a whole thing I, yeah i don't know how we had access 
but we did and I can't yeah. I can't trace that story uh, I need to find isn't out isn't that awful when you're like how did that happen yeah there's a lot of things like yeah. that that I just cannot figure out what exactly happened yes so you had been drugged with quaaludes which are a very very powerful sedative I guess yeah it's like a barbiturate sedative it's a, such a yeah. crazy drug it's so worthless medically that they they banned them because it just <laughs> fucking fucks you up so yeah. bad and and when you're a young teen, is it out? What's the first drug you'd stumble the into? The first drug that kind of reintroduced me to that feeling that like, oh, like I'm kind of like melting away. Yeah. yeah. Was um, I was doing synchronized swimming. Nice. And I had pulled a hamstring. Right. And, you know, and the doctor prescribed Vicodin. Mm, that's crazy. I was like 12 years old. It was crazy. So He's like you're gonna you're gonna need some hydrocodone. Yeah, for this I'm like, what doctor would do that? But but he did. So um, so my mom was like, you know, you take you take one every, you know, she was very like by the book. So I took like one every six hours, like the first like two or three days, and then we had you know like some left over, and she had it like up in the top of the cabinet, just you know sitting there. And I was, you know, and I was a latchkey kid. So I would come home and I'd be like, oh, there's that Vicodin up there, <laughs> you and know? So, like 12. Yeah. And I had friends, you know, that were drinking. I mean, we, my friends, I was living, you know, in North Concord in the Bay Area out by a drive-in. And my friends were like party friends. You know, like they were smoking pot every day in the, in the field, in the trees and doing PCP and, you know, cocaine and drinking and, you know, like they were young, young, How young. young, like 12. Yeah. Cause it's like the book is very cinematic and you kind of feel that sort of whatever it is, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Like vibe of like shaggy hair yes, and like yeah. post-punk music and fucking and metal and, and drugged out kids. Yes. And yeah. you were like, I want to, that be was my scene. Right. Like, like going to shows, like seeing bands, going to parties. That was very much my scene. Like if there was like music. Early, oh early. yeah, early on. Like, yeah, it was it was my thing. Like I felt that was my happy place. Like if I was doing drugs and there was music and my friends were there, that was like perfect scenario for me. What was what were the drugs you remember first really loving? The first drug. Okay, so there was the Vicodin. And then the the first drug that I was really like, oh shit, like this is it, was cocaine. And how old? Um, I think I was like 13. And let me ask yeah. you, I, I, this is never fun. When you talk about like being basically removed from your father who was violent to go live in the beautiful California yeah. and you get to move in with your grandfather yes. who is monstrously, you know, horrible that, and, and when does that happen that your grandfather takes an, a sexual interest in you? That happened. I was like, I can't believe, like, because Suki yeah. gave me her book way before it came out to read it and to blurb it. And I'm reading it and I'm hanging out. And then I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want this to happen. Yeah. You know, so. Even when I read it, I want a different scenario. Of I'm course. like, oh, maybe it won't happen this time. Right. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> but it does. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. So, so yeah. spoiler alert, it's going to happen. <laughs> how old, how old are you at that point? It happened. He started sexually abusing me when we were going to trial against my dad, like the most vulnerable time, you know, in my life up and up to that point, I, you know, like I had 
so much to deal with as a young kid. And he started sexually abusing me. Like 11, 12. No, younger. Like I was like nine. Yeah. And what was he doing? He started, it was like, uh, if we were like on a car ride, my mom, like my mom, we would go to visit like other relatives. So typically my mom would drive and my grandmother would be in the front seat. My grandfather and I would be in the back seat. And so it started where he would, uh, you know, like you can, you can rest your head on my lap. And like that, you know, like that seemed innocent, you know, and we're all in the car together. So like what could happen? And then he would be, he would have, I would have my head on his lap and he would start to touch himself. Oh God. And I could feel him feel his erection, you know, which was like, you know, like you're, when you're like eight years old, you're like, what the fuck? What is, is going what on? What is happening? Like, what is this? But you're in the car with your mom and your grandma. And it's also. your grandfather. Yeah. And I remember one time we were coming back from um, Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa, I think it was. And we were coming through Vallejo and he was doing something. I can't remember if he was touching me somewhere or I don't remember what was happening. But at the moment that that happened, we got rear ended and it was just like this. I don't know. It was just very like explosive, like within me. I was like, oh, my God, like this is this is really happening. Like it kind of, you know, because I was kind of. You didn't. It's like you're almost in a I fog. I didn't want to believe it. it. Yeah. Right. And then like yeah. this, this thing can't happens. can't be happening to me. And, and then you realized what was happening. Yeah. And, and it, it it got progressively worse where he was you know, raping me, you know, like where he was, you know, coming after school and and, you know, dominating me. So it was. It was and did you did you tell anybody about it? I told I didn't tell anyone until I think I was in, I think I was in eighth grade and I actually told a neighbor that lived across the street from him and she did nothing. What did you say? You think? I, I, I think I said, I don't remember exactly, but she had a daughter that I played with and that daughter was a little bit older than me and I spent a lot of time at their house. And I said something to her like, uh, I think I said something like my grandfather tries to kiss me or tries to touch me or something like that. And she seemed genuinely like kind of like, well, you can you can come over here anytime you want, but but not so concerned that she wanted to like tell involve, anybody. Tell anybody. Or your mom should or my know. mom or any yeah. Or confront my grandfather who was her neighbor or anything. Did part of you want to tell your mom? I don't think I don't think so because I was so I had this I knew my mom had been through so much also. That I didn't want to, and she was, yeah, yeah, because like she was, I mean, we really, I mean, we went from being in a fair, in a pretty affluent neighborhood in Omaha to struggling in the Bay Area. Like, I mean, we, my mom was getting $1 a month child support because the state of Nebraska had to allot her something. And my dad made a lot of money. He had, they had a family business that did really well and he hid all of his assets and so my mom got $1. And so, you know, we were struggling terribly. And so I, I knew like she was working hard and I, and she'd been, she'd been through this battle with my dad and I knew how hard it was on her. So I didn't want to put any more on her plate. And it's like, you're, you're this kid. Yeah. And it's been years at this point. Yeah. And you're living with this man. Yeah. How, and first of all, I can't tell you, like, I think 
you know, my experience reading it was was so painful that I would block it out as I read it. You know, I'm ser- I mean, like, I'm serious. I love to hear that. And, and well, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I'm and I'm also so sorry it happened. And Thank I don't want to put you in a spot like an uncomfortable spot now. Yeah. But I think these stories are like relevant for people who have been through them. Yes. And and there's no pressure to say anything. But like, how did you get it to stop? I um, and I'm so glad you said that because it is painful to talk about it. But also because I know so many people have experienced this, like I think it's important to shed light on it also and be like, it's this happened, you know, Um, because so many people probably even have weird fucked up memories where they don't even know what happened. Right. Right. Because our minds are so deranged. Like what happened there? So like, how did you end the cycle? Well, okay. so by the time. So we didn't live with them that long. We lived with them for a few months, for, I don't know, maybe six months. And then we got our own place. And I'm sure you were so excited. I was ex- I was really excited. But then my mom was like, I don't want you alone after you get home from school. So when you get home from school and, you know, like have a snack or whatever, I want your grandfather's going to come after because he worked for the school district. So he got off pretty early also. So he would come and pick me up. Which, you know, like, I mean, as a parent myself, like, I can see what she was thinking, you know, like, I'll have this other adult come get you because you're a preteen and shouldn't be left to your own devices. But um, but instead, I'm going to I'm going to have the rapist come and take care yes, of you. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, she didn't know. I so know. it's like it's so um, horrible because it's like you want you don't ever want to put your kids in you a don't situation ever wanna, like that. Yeah. That's what I don't, I like don't let, I mean, I don't think anybody is with my kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was like that with my kids too. But, uh, well, it's like, if you can't trust your father, then who can, who can you, you trust? trust? Yeah. So, and, and so when you take the Vicodin for the first time, yeah. how connected to this trauma do you think that opiate, because everyone talks about, opiate addicts tend to have been molested. Yeah. Like that is a built-in thing. Yeah. Like opiate addicts, heroin addicts, nine out of 10 have had some sort of sexual assault. Do you think like your love of opiates was connected to this at all? I'm I'm sure. I mean, yeah, who knows? That's a stupid question. No, no, not at all. No, I I I think it's valid. Like, because I think like I do connect those. Like I do, like that was... Because when I took the Vicodin, knowing that I, that, you know, the hamstring was mended, like I was fine. Like I knew, like I'm, t- I took it because I, w- I was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> like I, I, I wanted to escape. Yeah, yeah. I wanted an escape. So I did like attach the two. Like that was, it was a getaway for me. You know, it was like a, well, it's a real, a it's a real learned behavior that yeah. when I take this, I feel better. Right. For sure. So one day he came to get me and my mom had called him at work, I think, and told him that she was coming home earlier than normal. It was a Friday. And so she she was like, you can just you don't have to pick her up. But he came anyway. So and my mom and I'd been on the phone with my mom. So she was like, you just stay home. You know, I'll be home in a little while. And I was like, great. You know, so I'm in my room and I hear the I hear the car and I hear the keys and his whistling. I can hear the whist- him whistling through the door. And I'm like, what the fuck? You know, why is, why is he here? And so immediately I was having anxiety and panic because, you know, it, it was 
more of a threat because he wasn't, but there was no justifiable reason for him to be there. So he so, was really violating on another yes, level. Yeah, yeah. And you, you knew because it that- wasn't like he was supposed to be p- picking me up that day. He wasn't, and my mom had told me that he wasn't. You know, and so I knew I was supposed You're to be like, staying home. Fuck this. Yeah, and so I don't know. I don't know to this day, like why, like what it was. I like un- unleashed holy hell on him. Like I, he pressed up against me and was trying to like have sex with me and i i just went off like i was scratching and clawing and screaming i it was like feral i i just was done like how I, old do you think you were at that i point? was i think i was 13 right yeah and how do you think that changed your life because i mean like you i, I feel an like interesting question i feel like you had been you know a you're fucking drugged you're attempted kidnapped by your father violence at home you're you you've been through so much stuff yeah and at 13 you've you've started taking vicodins when you could you've been drinking and and you're getting sexually assaulted by your grandfather yeah and i'm thinking like when you stand your ground to your grandfather and you're like fuck you and you attack him whatever yeah like all of a sudden you're almost like an adult in in this weird way yeah i was what's interesting about that though is that his parting words leaving the house were a th- was a threat. Like he said, yeah, I'm going to get you sent back to your dad. So I lived in terror right. for months right. thinking that, and, and logically, like, of course that wasn't going to happen. He would have had to have told my mom, like that would never have happened. But like you had done something wrong. Yes. Like, like you, yes. and you were the victim and, yeah. and you had finally asserted yourself. Yeah. And, and, and then he still gets you, you know, totally afraid yeah. but so post that what's the drinking what's the drugs what's like the the early teen life like uh a lot of partying like that was that was my good like i i pretty much only went to school to have social connections and like you know like where's the party and you know like let's cut school and and drink or you know get drugs or you know like that was more that was my reason for going to school. Like I wasn't interested in being at school. Did you, when did you, when did your mother find out about your grandfather? She found out my freshman year. It was right about the time of freshman year in high school. And she found my diary oh that my I had God. kept, which was just like, I was mortified. Like I was like, cause she confronted me with it. Like she, she held it, you know, she was holding it. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like she's, She's read my diary, you know, and like I was so scared and um, it was kind of a relief. Like she she, you know, she didn't not believe any of it. So that was comforting for me and like helpful for me in healing. Well, how did she deal with this fact about her father? I think she had a hard time with it. And like, I think because she, he was an alcoholic and she he had been erratic with her and not inappropriate that she remembers although she has admittedly said she doesn't know i'm sure know? she felt like she failed you and i'm sure yeah. like she had a she, hard even time today she right. says she'll right. make comments about it like yeah i was a great mom like you got you know you were molested and you were a junkie <laughs> you know i mean but it's two it's, for two yeah yeah doing great but i mean she I understand it. Like she was doing the, she was doing the best she could. And I kept it secret. Like, how would she know? You know, not to mention it's like, and I have to give a shout out to uh, salty mom's gone sober podcast because that lady was so disgusted 
by the molestation and stuff. And I and and I could hear it in your voice, your your recovery work. Yeah, you, know, you can't hold on to these resentments or right. else you're fucked. Right. So you need to find a way through it and yeah. to deal and accept your life the way it is. And, yeah. And that's how you manage to have a life. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if you don't, you don't get to have a right. life. Right. 100%. Does, how does your addiction develop in your teen years? Like, were you like, were you, I mean, you weren't a crazy drug addict, but you loved getting high. And yeah. Getting I mean, wasted. really my my addiction like didn't really escalate until until my 20s like i kept it you know like i was a party girl like that was that was my thing you know so i did i did you know anything pretty much anything i didn't really like hallucinogens i think because it triggered some kind it of triggered, deep trauma yeah and i was all i yeah i had i had fear that like it would like i'd you know, it'd bring up things with my grandfather or my dad. Like, so I, I kind of veered away from hallucinogens, but pretty much any other drug. And you didn't or, love weed either. I didn't love weed either. Because it's it's another introspective, yeah. like self, you know, seeking yes. like, thing. And I liked things that um, took you out of that your took brain. took me out of my brain. Yeah. That like, I felt like, you know, like I was a, in a different place, you know? And when did uh, the, the, because you start working at Tower Records. Yeah. And you start. Which was a great place for drugs. <laughs> what's the Tower Record drug scene like? It Well, I mean, it was great. It was really, I mean, it was a lot of fun. Like, and I was um, managing a department for a while. So I had, you know, like backstage passes and VIP stuff and. I remember and the James Addiction just, show. What were what were the highlights of your Tower Records? Era? Oh my gosh, there there are so many. I mean, there are so many shows that I went to, like bands that were nobody at the time that went big, or bands that were really great that never took off. That I'm like, God, I can't believe they never took off. But like, I saw, I mean, I saw so many shows and got so many, so much free music swag. You know, it was. It was it was a lot of fun. Like I'm still really close with a number of the people that I worked with there. It's so crazy. Like, like how special it was to be around records and CDs yeah. and music and shows and like the currency that it held for us yeah. and that it doesn't hold anymore. Yeah. It's, it's really cra it's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy how precious how, how how monetarily valuable a CD was or a record was and how yes. soulfully valuable it was. Or and how finding a record. Oh, like yeah. a finding a record that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is here. And like just, you know, thumbing through the, the stack thing. of records and finding a treasure and that feeling that you got that like you found it and nobody else has it. Right. Or 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 just when you connect to it. Yes. And you and you find your song on the record or yes. Like, and, and dropping the needle on the vinyl and just like and reading being immersed. Reading in that the feeling. record too. Yes, reading yeah. the record. And it's like the record becomes you in a lot of yes. ways. Yeah. Or you become it. And that's why that era of like sceniness like was so special to people like you and I. Yeah. And when did the modeling hit? Around I, then, right? Yeah. I mean, I had done some like, you know, like little stuff and like uh, like a local news magazine kind of thing when I was a teen. And then when I was after Tower Records and after both my kids were born, I was like, I'm going to try to do some modeling and acting again. And so that's like, I, I kind of like picked up again, like where I, it was like a thing that was giving me pleasure and, you know, gave me 
um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Like, I think I had as much, I had more fun probably going to the parties and hanging out with the people that I, that were in that scene at the time than I did actually doing the work. Well, but it was fun. It's you also know? you're recognized as like good looking. And, yeah. And you're recognized as somebody who looks good enough for me to pay to take a picture of you. Yeah. And that's high. Like that's a high in itself. Yeah. I get this attention because of for how sure. I look and, and it makes me special. And I, it's cool. You know what I mean? To yeah. be wanted in that way. Yeah. When does the drug addiction in your twenties really kick in? Like what do you remember? Like when it changed? I remember vaguely like the time period when like my group of friends all started getting into heroin like I re I remember that happening and wait when did you have your first kid I was 20 right or a little just right around 20 yeah so where do you I mean like because we're jumping from high school yeah through tower records to you being married and pregnant yes yeah so I met the the father of my children at Tower and then I I had two kids like back to back and then our young marriage, as hell. Yeah. We we're both young and you know And like, you were like super mom. I I mean I wouldn't I don't think my kids would say that. At first though. <laughs> my kid, my kids are like you're crazy. In the book <laughs> though at first way. at first you were like super like you were like yes. with your husband yeah young, i mean that's how i felt family. i felt like you know like i felt like i kind of had like this dream life like we have all the things going you know we got a house and a car and how old was the the guy what was he doing he was working in tech more right or less. yeah and you had a house and we you're like house. this young yeah. good-looking couple with kids yeah yeah, seem like so. Yeah. For, when I'm reading it, I'm like, "Wow, she's super mom." <laughs> regardless of what yeah. you're actually doing, but it, I mean, yeah. So, and you stopped using, right? I did. Yeah, I stopped using because it wasn't I didn't really use addiction. Any of my, it wasn't really addiction. Not, a, I don't think at that point. Like, I definitely. Well, I don't know that it was an addiction. Like, I think I was just trying to manage it better, or I was. Man I don't know. I mean, I definitely had the same feelings. You know, the, I mean, we all know that feeling like when you take that drug, when you take that whatever it is and you feel that swell in your chest and you're like, mm, like this, mm -hmm, this is the feeling like when you feel that and you just want that all the time, that's what you want to feel all the time. I think that that to me is like when the first time I remember feeling that I'm I identify that as when I was first an addict. And that was early for me. Like that happened with the quaaludes with my dad. Like I had that feeling of, ooh, like it's going to be okay. Like I don't know what's happening, but it's going to be okay because I feel warm inside and I'm floating away and, you know, like I'm disconnecting from everything. So I I had like chunks of that. Well, I think up for until me, I had my kids. I, I disconnect my addiction before I was totally strung out. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was a crazy pothead. I smoked pot every day for many, many years. I yeah. would do acid. I would do psychedelics, and then I would do heroin occasionally. I'd do coke occasionally. Yeah. But I don't think any of that was was like obviously it was the precursor to a a long, long run of drug addiction. Yeah. But I don't feel like it was real addicty until I was totally strung out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, yeah. I I'm deciding for you. Yeah. That until you were. Totally strung out. You weren't really an addict. Yeah. So it was the pills. Like the a doctor prescribed some pills for me that I didn't even ask for. Like I wasn't even. Like, but that was after you had both kids. 
Uh, yes, it was after it was after my son was born. And then I had a third pregnancy that I lost. And it was in between those pregnancies. Do you remember that period in the middle where you weren't using anything? Yeah, I mean, I do. But I think I re I think I replaced the feeling of pregnancy. Like the pregnancy was my addiction. Like I was like getting high on like the the idea of like having children and being a mom and this like I was I was into that you know it was kind of addictive you know that feeling you're also getting attention like people are like oh the baby's coming you know, like there's there's all these sort of feelings that are kind of similar in a weird way when you're pregnant when you're getting this attention and you're you know your hormone levels are crazy and you have all this excitement happening and then you know once the kids once both my kids were born and then I got pills. And then what I, were the pills that you prescribed? I was prescribed codeine and fioracet, which was like, I was like, what is it? Like, it's codeine. Like, I thought it was, you know, like, I didn't really think much of codeine. I thought it was like kind of like a bottom feeder <laughs> narcotic. And I. But you got hooked on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I. Yeah. It was taking like, you know, like one a day. And then like, it just it just kept going. Like, it kept going until I was taking like, you know, like where I was like chewing like five or six at a time, you know. And and what's that like? Because you're because we had almost skipped the birth of your kids, and you're yeah. like my you're like my friends started doing heroin. Like yeah. who were these friends, and and how does that play out when you have these two little kids? Um, and I also think yeah, in general, you're very brave. Like oh, I mean you. I mean I think you're brave to to your story is very different than most people's story. Like most people aren't like having kids in the middle and then fucking I know I do heroin. everything out of order but I mean, <laughs> always like, but I think that that's like it's worth mentioning like and I I mean I you know the fact that I go over these stories so often like I appreciate that it's different yeah and I also think like it's it's crazy to be in your early 20s you have two fucking little kids how does how do your friends start using dope at that point well okay so none of my friends had kids. So I, you know, I same was, scene -y kind of crowd. Yes. Same crowd. I had friends that were in thrash bands and friends that were strippers and friends that, you know, like very like nineties alternative, you know, Bay area. And that's like, the, like when heroin is on a comeback. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's like um, nine inch nails, Nirvana, pre nine inch nails, Nirvana. Yeah. Like that period yeah. When heroin was becoming cool. Again. Portis head like that right. whole right, right, right. that whole sort of vibe. I yeah, it was kind of an anomaly because like I was, you know, like if I wanted to go out and go to the shows, I had to get a sitter, you know, so and, and you like still wanted to be and in friends the scene. would come over. Right. And so I still wanted to be connected. So what I would do is throw like little dinner parties and stuff. So, cause I was like, well, you know, like I can't bring the kids everywhere. I mean, now, nowadays people do, they just throw some headphones on their kids and they take them with them. But, you know, I would just invite people over, you know, like, Oh, we're going to have a Oscar party. There'd be like, you know, alcohol involved, not necessarily, not drugs per se, but you know, there were people that were doing drugs that were there, you know, and you started using secretly. I started using secretly. And your yeah. husband didn't know. N I, no, I don't think he did. Yeah. And and at what point does does it become heroin? I think it was probably right around the time that my husband and I split up, like right around that time, because I was just like you know 
untethered, you know, like a compass swinging wildly. Like I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to. You're so young. Yeah. I'm just going to do some drugs. So. And what, um, why do you think you guys split up? I mean, I think it's a number of reasons. I think like, I think we were young and I don't, I don't think either of us were happy in the marriage. So we weren't ready for it. We weren't ready. Yeah. So yeah. There's so much other life to be lived and you have this commitment that's in place and it's like, how can you? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for him, but yeah. And I think also like, I, I think there was also a large part of me self-sabotaging like, this is too good. Like, like I, this is not right. Like I don't deserve this or this isn't what I should have, or this isn't how I want to do, you know, like, I think there was some of that to some degree also. So, you know, and it was at that point that the modeling came back. It started, I started doing modeling and acting. Like I started doing like some modeling jobs and like extra work. I did a lot of extra work, a lot of pilots, a lot of commercials, (laughs) like things like that, you know? And and what I is, mean, more than anything, it was just like, I can like play cards and like hang out with people because I would bring cards and like just chit chat all day because, you know, you're you're waiting for the next day. you're waiting. And if you're taking narcotics, you're chatty as fuck. So like, you know, you're surrounded by all these people and they're all creative and, you know, it was it was a fun time. And then there was after parties and all that sort of thing. So what does the addiction start to take shape as like? When are you using every day? Oh, um, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it it probably took a couple of years, like where I was like doing, like I do like heroin or coke, like on the weekends, you know, or like then like midweek maybe. Like it started to kind of get like where I'm doing it more and more, but I'm doing pills every day, you know? So I'm always doing pills. And then at some point, like, I'm doing the heroin like maybe twice a week and I'm doing all the pills that I have. So I have to go shop for pills. So, you know, my kids are at school and I'm like, you know, doctor shopping or, you know, like adding a number on the prescription or, you know, it's escalating. So. And your kids would be with your, with your ex half the time, right? They, they were with him occasionally. And so that was like when they were with him, I was definitely you know, like far gone. I was gone. Yeah. Like I spent a lot of time with a group of people that I call the Claremontians <laughs> and the people that lived in the Claremont area of like Ashby and Claremont in the Oakland Hills. And, you know, they had big wild parties and there were people that were in bands and it was a lot of fun. Like, but I like my weekends were, yeah, it was like two different lives because like during the week, like I was in the carpool lane at the Catholic school with my kids late always late, like always late. Like I have terrible guilt because my kids were always, always late. And then on the weekends I was, you know, partying and just loaded, just running amok. (laughs) And eventually it was, so eventually it kind of flip-flopped where I was using the codeine and Fiora set and like doctor shopping and like doing heroin occasionally. It changed to like where I was doing heroin all the time and the codeine and Fiora set and the doctor shopping was what filled the gaps when I didn't have heroin. When did the heroin show up like hardcore? It showed up. When did it show up like in any way? It showed up in the 90s like with my friends in my in my group of friends and it was mostly like musician friends or friends that were like you know in bands and that sort of thing in the Bay Area that 
were experimenting with it. Like there was like this ecstasy wave that kind of went through the Bay Area, like where everybody was doing ecstasy. And then then there was this like kind of heroin wave where everybody was doing heroin. And a, a lot of my friends just kind of experimented with it. Like they would do it, you know, like once in a while. And for me, like it was something like, as you know, as soon as I started doing it with any sort of normalcy, like where I was doing it like, you know, every weekend, like I was like, oh, that that's it. Like, this is what I need. Like, once you start doing that, like codeine, codeine and fewer said is not going to cut it. Once you started doing heroin. Do you remember the first time you did it? I remember I, the first time I did it, I smoked it. Where were you? What was the deal? I was with a friend and I smoked it and I didn't, it didn't. Off foil? Yeah. And I didn't, I remember it not really being, like, I don't remember it being, we were also doing Coke though. So I don't remember it being that great. Like I was like. I never mm. got that high from smoking it at all. Yeah. Like it never hit me right. I did. <laughs> I mean, eventually I did because that, that was actually the main way I did it was smoking it. I didn't want to, because I had the kids at home, like I didn't want like rigs around and I didn't, I didn't like. Well, I'm sure. I mean, like when did you, did you use needles at any point? Yes. And, yeah. and, and I mean, nobody really, I know I didn't want to, I didn't really want to have needles. Like, like, yeah. like I, I, I only did when. Someone was, well, maybe I did want to, and I was like conflicted and I was scared of it. And then I did. And then I just had needles. Yeah. Um, so take us through your heroin addiction. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was primarily smoking it because, because my kids were in the house. And so it was, I mean, what that looked like was me, like I had it in a, in the back of a drawer, like where my kids could have absolutely found it. But I kept it in the drawer and like I would not even leave my bed. Like I wouldn't even get out of bed. Like I would just like crawl to the the end of the bed and reach into my dresser from the end of my bed and get like, you know, my little setup. And before before they were up, before I took them to school, you know, like I was I was doing heroin, you know, and then it did was, they did you buy it in balloons? Yeah. And what was the setup? Foil. Foil. And like I'd make these intricate little like, you know, straw like things out of foil to smoke it. And and I had this I was living in Oakland at the time and I had a window that looked out kind of like you kind of could kind of see the Bay Bridge from the top because I was up on a hill and I would open the window because, you know, the smell, you know, so I would. But I was also smoking cigarettes at the time. So my I don't I just in my mind, I was thinking, well, the kids won't know that it's heroin heroin <laughs> like why would they but how old were they at that point they were young they were like elementary school so i would open the window and there was like a little like a platform like it was above the garage so i would kind of like lean out and like smoke my heroin you know and then i'd smoke a cigarette and then if they came in because it was it was kind of the my room was a little bit separated from their rooms it was like off the kitchen and like up above the garage so like I could kind of hear them and I had steps little steps that went up to my room and so you know if they were coming I could kind of like hide stuff quick but yeah I mean it was just like all you know it was all day like it was just me getting high all day and doing heroin and then you know like I'd take I'd take some coding and furoset during the day like midday and then I'd maybe have some ecstasy or you know like it was just like a cocktail of drugs like how all did you do it with the kids what do 
How did you stay high and parent? Um, not not well. well. Not well. <laughs> not well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like my kids have memories of, you know, of me like passed out and like bloodied and like, you know, just like just a mess, you know, like I I, I can't Did I your still ex have know? I I don't I don't think he did. Like I I don't know. Like we don't really talk and I I can't speak for him, but I don't think he I don't think he knew. And I was afraid that he would find out because I was afraid that, you know, that would be it. Like he would that would be take it. Custody. He would take my kids, yeah. But he didn't find out. Not until later on, no. And then so you're managing like uh acting, modeling, parenting drug taking life partying when does when does the bottom <laughs> a lot of partying <laughs> right like, like a lot of me like going to parties and going to like the bar at the claremont hotel and hanging out with like you know celebrity adjacent people and like local celebrity type people and it was like model life yeah yeah which is exciting traveling which is exciting yeah. and luxurious but also like a little disconnected from for sure reality. Yeah, like I my kids have this memory of um, I mean this is ter- I was I, I was you know I was not a good parent at that time like at all. Like my kids have this memory, and I didn't even remember it until they were talking about it because they were super integral in me writing the book. And they were saying, "Do you remember like we used to go to the Claremont Hotel?" And I knew people that worked there, so I would get like a suite. You know, like I would get like a beautiful suite. Like I've stayed in the penthouse at the Claremont Hotel and we I'd you know like order room service up, but I would take them like out of school for the day. You know, because I was like, well, you know, like overcompensating I, kind of Well, thing. not even that, but I wanted to party. So, you know, like I would, you know, like I'd be like, Well, just we're just gonna take a vacation day. I mean, it was awful. Like who does So wait, that? but if you're partying in yeah. the in the penthouse of the Claremont Hotel yeah. and the kids are not in school, yeah. What do the kids do while you're partying? We you know, like we would I would like do whatever in the bathroom or I'd be taking pills all day and then we'd go down to the pool. You know, like I take these little mini vacations with them and I'm sure it was like in part like overcompensating, like I'm gonna do this great thing right. for you because I'm not cutting it as a mom and I can't get you to school on time and I can, can't keep my own shit together. You but know? you being like the partier, we can party. Yes. Like, and it's like, now you can feel special and we yes. have this special existence sure. and you get this special day because I'm the cool mom right. kind of yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I yeah. get it. And when does it start like getting, I mean, it's in this phase, it's like, it still seems shiny and, and yeah. dealable. When does it start not being so shiny um well so i had somebody in my life died and so that was a big that what was, was what was that story well it was i'm like well <laughs> it was somebody that i was seeing and and he was using and he was using and were you were you like living with him often? i was not i mean i was we were spending a lot of time together and you were using together yes and heroin heroin yeah and so he and he was like a very like dynamic. He was just a wonder like <laughs> he was a wonderful per- like a wonderful person. You know, like people loved him. So like when he passed, like it was it was really like kind of a, a sh- it was shocking because he was such a bright, like vivacious person. And he OD'd. And, well, he had a car accident. Oh, but um, yeah. it, you know, like whether it was. Drug related, drug related or, not. or not? Yeah, like I, I'll never know. You know, like I'll never know that. That was Casper. Yes, 
yeah, Casper in the book. So, and, and he, I mean, from what I remember, because I can barely remember yesterday, and I read the book a long, a long ago time now, ago, yeah. But from what I remember, he really, I mean, you loved him. I did, yeah. And, and 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 also, you loved to get high with him. Yes. And he loved getting high. Yeah. And it kind of reignited your passion for heroin in some kind of way. Yes. Well, and also like he, we kind of like we would vibe to like the same, like we were both really into the Carpenters and like weird, you know, like music, like we'd listen to like Mr. Bungle or the car, like just like, or at a Mr. Bungle and the Carpenters. Yeah. Like we had, there was like a weird mix of music that we were both, you know, when you have music that you both like, oh, that's weird that we're both into this kind of music but it also is like the soundtrack to our relationship uh, relationship and our addiction Mm. together you know like there was a lot of time that we spent together like just listening to music and getting high and like with each other so yeah it was shocking not just to me but to everybody in his circle when he passed but it was kind of it should have been a wake-up call for me like that should have been like oh shit like maybe i shouldn't be Fucking getting loaded and getting loaded and driving all the time. Yes, yeah, and with my kids, you know. So, which is terrifying. It is terrifying. And and you look back on it, and you're like, on one hand, you know, this show is about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, so you want to lay it down. Yes. And then on the other hand, you're like, am I? It's fucked up, and am I being judged because I'm not a good mother? And like, where does it all sit? Yeah. How do you deal with it when you go over it? Like. I mean, I, I've made an amends to my kids. Like, I don't know how many times, like I honestly, like one of the things that I feel the worst about is I could not for the life of me, get them to school on time. I just couldn't. And I, I still feel bad, like that they had to walk into class. Like, even if it was like a minute late, they were walking into class every day, a minute late because I couldn't get my shit together because I had to get high in the morning or because I was at the methadone clinic or, you know, like whatever the reason was, like I couldn't get them there on time. And that I feel like I'm like, fuck was, did that fuck them up like forever? (laughs) But, um, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. Like there's nothing I can do about the past period. Absolutely. So I just have to kind of be kind with myself that like, Hey, you were doing the best you could at the time. Thank God you've got it. You've gotten it together now. Like I, I don't have to be that person now. Well, that's the way we deal with. That's the way I think you have to deal with all of the trauma and heartache and failure and For mistakes sure. and how I do too and how anybody who's in recovery deals with it. Yeah, that's what we have to do, or else, you know, we don't. We what is it? You don't. You have to fucking move on, or right. or, or you or you're just going to be stuck be in some miserable spot. Right. When Casper died, how did it hit you? I had a really hard time and like I I was really I was really messed up about it. But then I and then I because I was still like fixing on things, you know, that I was very active in my addiction. I transferred, you know, like I started dating somebody else right away. So I just went from like one person to the other, like, uh, not going to deal with that going to keep using. And then we started using together. I mean, we were using together, not that we started, we were both using and then we got together and we're still using. And so it escalated. Like it just, it, that, that really, the pace quickened. I think when, when we got in that relationship together, the pace quickened, like we both had access to drugs and like 
we would both just burn through whatever supply. And you would lie to each other about what you had. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I would get my prescription for the codeine and Fiora set and then maybe go doctor shopping and be like, and you know, he'd be like, Hey, do you have any, uh, do you have any of that Tylox or do you have any of that? Like he, and I'd be like, no, I haven't seen the doctor. You know, meanwhile, you know, I've got like 200 in, right, <laughs> in my right. purse, you know, or whatever. I don't think I ever had a real relationship i didn't have any romantic relationship with i i did one i had one romantic relationship with a, a woman who used uh and we wound up on methadone really yeah. fast and i never i never lied about what like i never held back drugs yeah. i feel like todd todd and i had a very That's deep so relationship that you never held back drugs no 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 but i don't think i ever like i just I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know that it's impressive. I think it was situational. Yeah. I think Todd, and I, I don't think me and Todd even held back drugs from each other. Todd would once in a while, I think we both would say we had this and you can't have it. Oh. Like, it would be like that. Oh. Because it was just like, no. You know what I mean? And we, we would, we'd get into scraps about that. Yeah. But that was like a serious, like, codependent drug addict relationship. And, and in yours, like, you were just lying to the guy yeah which i think yeah. is funny but i also was like i wonder <laughs> but he like, was lying to me too because he'd have st i mean he'd have stuff and not was not a good sure. relationship not a good, a good relationship a good relationship is based on honesty yeah um it's funny that we would be honest with each other and and just not give each other the drugs yeah you know what i mean <laughs> it's fucking so funny to think about so when does consequence start really showing its face to you because I mean, obviously, um, Casper's death was a consequence. For sure, yeah. I I was having a lot of mental health issues, like that were that I wasn't willing to acknowledge that drugs were the problem for for what I you know, like for the mental health issues I was having. I was like, well, it's not the drugs. Like, it's not that. But it absolutely, you know, like I wasn't being honest with doctors, you know, they'd be like, oh, I, we don't know why you're seeing squirrels on Wellbutrin, <laughs> you know, like literally, like my mom was like ready to 5150 me because I was like, there's shadow squirrels, like, you know, like I'm literally telling her that like these imaginary squirrels are coming out of the walls. What know? else were you doing? I mean, what math, else wasn't I doing? No, I wasn't, I didn't do math or like I, I did crack like a couple like a few like a few times like it just wasn't my thing like I didn't I didn't like being super speedy feeling and I didn't like I didn't like speed and I didn't like smoking weed like both of those were like not quite the right balance but like heroin and coke or ecstasy with like any of those combinations and like a few cocktails like that was that was right up my alley. No, I hear you. And yeah. when does methadone arrive? Uh, that that was with Jay, Jay in the book, um, who was Casper's roommate. And we he actually like sought it out and, and was like, hey, we should check out methadone. And I, I was really like I was like, that's why we, I just didn't think it would work. Like I was like, if methadone works, like why? Why isn't every junkie on methadone, you know? Well, lots, lots are. How long did yeah. you do it for? Months. Yeah. Like I went, I did like tapers, you know, like I do like a, the 20 and I'm trying to remember now if it was 21 or tw what, I think it's 28, 28 days, whatever the taper was, but I wouldn't make it like, you know, like you'd get like two weeks in and they'd start dropping the dose and then you'd be like, uh, I'm not feeling so good. It's crazy. Yeah. And then you go, you're like, fuck it. I'm just going to go cop, you know? So there was a lot of that like back and forth and 
I had a, a really good counselor at the methadone clinic I was at in Berkeley. And she was like, hey, like, why don't you? Well, she was like, first of all, she was like, why don't you ditch the guy you're with? Because that relationship isn't serving you. Like, it's not helping you. Like, you guys are not pulling each other up out of this. Like, that's not going to happen. And so she was like, Did you she know, say two sickies don't make a welly? <laughs> Man, I wish she had. She did tell me to go to AA. And I was like, Two oh. dead batteries won't start the car. <laughs> that's a good one. I don't think I know that one. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's a Long Island one. That's a, <laughs> that's a New York one. <laughs> that's why I don't know it. Keep your fucking mouth shut and two dead batteries won't start the car. That's, <laughs> I'm going to throw that's that New out York, in the that's Bay Area New York, yeah, <laughs> in a meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I, she was like, what, what is, what is serving you about this relationship? And like, I was like, well, you know, like I was looking at it, like not any, like, cause we were, it was not a healthy relationship. Like we're friends now, he and I are, but like at the time, like we were both a He's sober mess. now? He is, I don't, I don't know that he's sober, but, but he's, he's not in active addiction. Right. And he's, you know, doing good. So, but so yeah, we split up and. I detoxed off methadone, which was great fun. <laughs> and um, yeah, and started going to meetings. Like I started. So that was the end? Yeah. The end was methadone? The end was methadone. And then when me. you got yeah. off of methadone, you were like, I'm fucking done. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. Like even just talking about methadone, like I'm transported. Yeah. Like like to. To, I, to I, a clinic. <laughs> well, to to a clinic, to the taste of of the you know the the cherry whatever yeah, or yeah. the orange whatever the yeah your, it just what it feels like to be there Th- that it's like it's like you're the viscosity of it <laughs> i mean i i also just think of it like you know like if you're on a roller coaster or something or on a flume when it takes you up yeah. and you're in that track and you can't get out of the track yeah like that's I'm what like method- this is all why i don't ride roller coasters but yes guys <laughs> no but that's what methadone is to yeah, me like sure. you're stuck right like and yeah. you have to go and you have to be you're in that world and yeah. it's like oh my god i was so fucking happy to get out of that world and, and 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 i'm not throwing any shade at anybody who's having a good life on methadone yeah. and or anyone who's in the process of of getting off of it yeah. or or if you like it good for you yeah. i was fucking thrilled it's so thrilling to me to even say that i got <laughs> to get off of it yeah. right um h- how long were you on it and that was like the end that was like the 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 exit of of you being a drug addict yeah how old were you i was like uh, 20s, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. You're young, you're vibrant, you've got these kids. Do you remember the, I don't know, moment of clarity? Do I remember? Like the moment of clarity. Like the like, first, like, like, like I'm going to actually try to do this. Well, I mean, like there, I went to, I went to AA while I was on methadone. And my counselor at the methadone clinic was like, uh, she had she had kind of forewarned me. She she was she was like, go go do some meetings. And I really was very skeptical about doing AA at all because my dad had tried AA and I didn't and it didn't seem like it just seemed like a joke to me, like because it didn't work at all for him. So I was like, I don't know about that. And she was like, just go try it. And then kind of like as like a like a 
uh, a PS. <laughs> They're probably going to give you shit about being on methadone. So she was kind of like, go do this. But no. Right. That they're probably not going to be really accepting. And I was like, what the fuck? So I did go and I did get shit for it. Like I did get a lot of shit for it. And I, I mean, I, I still have a little bit of resentment about that because I was like, I was trying to, I know, but fuck them. It's like, anyway, yes, they can yeah. all say, they could all say whatever they want. And, right. then, and then it's up to you what you're going to do. Right. Like yeah. people who talk shit about other people at meetings, like, they don't have a good program. Right. At, yeah. at what point do you think you're like, I actually want to change? I think. Because um, this all came out of nowhere for me. <laughs> you getting yeah. sober in this story. Yeah. Like what made it happen? Like, I think, I mean, I really, there was part of me that like I saw in myself what my dad was like to me. Mm. Like I saw like the to fucked up parent. Yeah. And I, and even though I didn't have like the rage, the anger, the um, volatile mood swings that he had, I still was... Absent. I was absent, yeah. Even I if was, you were there, you were Yes, absent. yeah, I wasn't available to my kids in the way they needed me to be. And that that was heartbreaking to me. Like, you, you want to give your kids everything. And if you can't, like, it's heartbreaking. So I, I think, like, for me, like, telling my mom that I was using was like a huge turning point. Cause I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to be accountable. Like once I tell my mom, once this is out of the bag and I tell my mom, there's no going back. Like I can't, I can't rescind it. Like once that's out there and she knows because my mom just will, she will not let things go. <laughs> so I was like, if I tell her that I'm using and, and so I'm what, using heroin, me, what happened there? I mean, it had been years of her asking me, are you on drugs? You know, like, what is, what is wrong with you? You know, like that kind of thing. Like, what is your problem? You know, what did she know? She, she knew I had, I, I was diagnosed really young with having depression and then manic depression. They then altered it to manic depression and then bipolar disorder. So she knew early on that I had mental health issues. So she just think, I think she thought it was, a combination of like trying to raise the kids by myself, dealing, you know, like going through a, like a divorce and like Casper passing away. She like she, I think she thought it was just a, a like a cumulative, nervous breakdown. Yeah, maybe. Right. <laughs> like she's having a two-year, three-year nervous break. Like yeah, because it was years of her and being like, scared. what's going on? And she and she had contributed in terms of like with her father and yes. with the marriage yeah and, or i'd be like can the, you take I'm the like, lawsuit yeah you know the, yeah. the that whole thing there's so yeah. much that she probably felt guilty about yeah so she didn't want to confront you because it seems like your family was not particularly confrontational anyway no no so yeah i'm sure that was part of it so like when i told her like i'm sure there was like a sense of relief she was like kind of like what you like i think she was kind of shocked that like i really was on drugs you know that that was what was going on like she was like where are you getting it like where and i told her like because i use humor to deflect i was like oh i get it at safeway and she was like you can get it at safeway and i was like no mom <laughs> and you were like i i i'm a fucking drug addict yeah and i and i'm getting out of it yeah and she was like really shocked that i you know that it was heroin you know like what you know like heroin like are you kidding me you know so it is um, shock it's always shocking it's always shocking yes. yeah but i had at that point committed to myself and you know to my at that point like my family like okay like i gotta i gotta do something like i'm gonna be accountable about this 
what, how long does it take for you to feel comfortable? Mm. It took me a while. Like I, I think it took me a little while. Like I, I think I had a, I had a lot of guilt for a long time about like not being a better mom for my kids. And even like, even once I was in recovery and doing meetings and stuff like that, it was still hard because like recovery is not easy. You know, like it's, you're not using and you're not a fucking crazy shit show like you were, but, but there's also, it's hard, like it's hard work. So that was a new balance. Like, you know, like, okay, like we're going to go to the meeting. (laughs) My kids were like, oh God. So the but kids I, were going. Oh yeah, I took them to all kinds of meetings. You know, I'd be like, "Here's a Game Boy, sit in the corner and don't listen." <laughs> yeah, whatever you do, don't listen. Don't listen. But you know, that was that was the, a change. That was the change that I needed was to start, you know, start going to meetings and really hold myself accountable and just do whatever I had to to make a, have a better life and do it and do it. You yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a wild story. And I think it's uh it's amazing that you've managed to put so much time together. Yeah. And it's I'm like, am- yes, it but is. but it's it really also is. because you are you're involved in yeah. your recovery. Yeah. You know, your recovery is incredibly important to you. It is. You know, you yeah. it's it's obvious to me. And I was I was I heard I think you actually just told me. I heard, I heard you talk about another show, but I also you also just told me that uh that in that period the only time you considered using was during covid right yeah i mean there may have been times you know throughout the years where did you maintain your scene persona without drugs in san francisco um a little like it wasn't easy to do that because you know like i i i slowly like i would try to go to parties and do the same things but it's just, it's not the same when you're not using it it's it's dangerous you know like it, it's too easy to be like you know yeah just let I'll have one drink you know like or um, I'll do one bump or you know like it's just too easy so I I did like a mini geographic and I moved so because we were in Oakland and I was like I'm gonna go into the suburbs a little bit like we're let's go get a quiet little house nestled away <laughs> so I did you know I just was ready for a change like I was ready to like kind of like put a cap on the the party life, you know, and just walk away. I was like, ah, you know, like you had done enough. I had done enough. And also like, I was, I was really surprised that when I went to, well, I started going to NA first. And like when I, the people that were in NA and, and AA in the Bay area in the nineties, or even now still like, like there's some like fucking rad, like just really cool people. Like, I'm like, these are people I would hang out with. Like these are, musicians, artists, you know, like they're, well, they're the same people that you did hang out with. They're just sober. They're just sober. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was once I realized that I could do, that I could have a a better life and still like have fun because I think I had it in my head that like, Oh, it's going to be awful. (laughs) Like it's surprisingly going to be terrible. And it wasn't, it was, you know, like it was a lot of like great, and it still is. Like, there's, I have great times with my friends in recovery. And what was the uh, the COVID nightmare? COVID, yeah. So, um, I'm I'm such a social person. Like, I love being around people. And for for me, like when when we went into lockdown, I slipped into 
the deepest depression I've had in years. Like I was suicidal. I was, you know, like there, the idea of using was way more alluring because I was like, I, I just was overwhelmed and I, I was, couldn't see my family. That's a really big part of my life is like seeing my kids and my mom on a regular basis. And so I had listened to Dopey earlier on and, you know, like I fall asleep, like listening to podcasts. That's like how, like it's like my happy place when I fall asleep. And I, I put on, I put on Dopey again and I heard an Amy Dresner episode and it was, it was like walking into AA again. It was like that first meeting where I was like, oh, these, these are my people. And it's, you know, there was kind of this feeling of it's going to be okay. And it replaced the, it filled something, the, the thing that I had like with AA where I felt connected to people I got with Dopey. I felt that same connection and that same sort of like, it's going to be okay kind of feeling. And how, how prominent was the relapse feeling in that period? I mean, it was I, just anxiety. It was a without lot the medicine. Of, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really hard. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate me. the nice thing you're saying about Dopey, <laughs> but I wanted to hear about when about like struggling. Yeah. Like I yeah. Oh, that's what you're saying is that Dopey made it so you the struggle was 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 dealt with. Yeah. Dope, I, you did. Dopey was medicinal. It was medicinal. Like, and the other thing is, like, everybody was doing Zoom meetings, and I'm terrible with technology like a yeah. if I can't if I can't do it on my iPhone I'm not good with it 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 was hard to kind of to do that you know yeah well it's it's a totally it's like it's also isolation and and everyone's sure. separated and and there's fear and your your mom was sick and yeah I get it I get it but um the book is see swallow me by Suki Jones and thank you so much for coming And uh, it's cool. I'm glad you came. I'm so glad I came too. So there we have author and dopey person, Suki Jones. Honor to have Suki. Please check out her book, See Swallow Me. I would love to hear what you guys thought about Suki. So send in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And now we are rejoined by our old friend. She has a book. It's called Strung Out, so we call her a strung out author. She's an advice columnist, but she's unlicensed, so we call her an unlicensed advice columnist, and she used to ride horses elitely, so we called her an elite equestrian. Of course, her name is Erin Carr, and here she is back on The Dopey Show. Before we get to Erin, I need to make another warning. There is stuff about sexual assault and incest So if you find sexual assault or incest to be triggering, you are forewarned. And I'll wait. There's a couple other things. Emilia, our editor, told me to warn you about this. So we need to give Emilia's crazy clothing company a shout out. It's called Fake Estate. And it is crazy recycled clothing. You need to check out fakeestate.shop. Emilia is a vital part of Dopey, and her clothing is so nuts. It's all recycled material. There's the blob shirt, the pebble jeans, the denim strip work jacket. I can't, there's the ultra spam hoodie that goes for $666. Amelia's crazy. 
Check it out at fakeestate.shop. And then also, before we get to Amelia, I have to say, if you love recovery podcasts, if you love middle-aged dads, you need to check out Recovery in the Middle Ages. It is our good friend Nat and Mike. It is the story of two suburban dads as they make their way through recovery and anonymity, or however you say that, anonymity, in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. Check them out wherever you get your podcast. It's called Recovery in the Middle Ages. Support Nat. And here she is, you know, strung out author, unlicensed advice columnist, elite equestrian, ex-elite equestrian, Aaron Carr. time and and i'm traveling like an idiot we're back at aaron's house welcome back to the show i'm being very serious no be serious do it i'm being really because otherwise we take too long to get started well aaron had a very good friend and ex-boyfriend named what's his last name well his legal name is john rowan but he went by blackie onassis from uh urge overkill yeah and he recently died of yes. a, was it a fentanyl overdose? Uh, we actually don't have a cause of death right now. And I don't, I mean, initially that's, I thought that it was an overdose, but now I'm not sure. I'm sure ultimately it's still drug related, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, it, it, they were not, it was not clear. He never got super sober though, right? He had periods of sobriety. Like when I met him, he was in a really good stable place. <laughs> so when <laughs> did you awful. meet him? I met him, well, I met him, I guess, I met him in 1999, and then we started dating in 2000. And what was what was your life like then? <laughs> I was in my six years of like just constant relapse. So that was the I crack think, era. Well, crack was with him. That's who I did crack with. That crack relapse was with Blackie. So for anyone who's read the book, Jack and the book. I mean, he said, you know, when we were when I was and writing crack-y. the book. Blackie yes. and Jackie yes, all, all rhyme. <laughs> he, when I was writing the book and talking to him to like remember things and like verify my account of things, he was like, no, 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 just use my name. And I was like, well, I already decided to kind of change everybody's name. So he wouldn't care that I'm saying that now. But so, yeah. Do you think he would have cared if he was alive? No, he told me to use his name. But you were like, I'm not using anyone's name. Yeah, I just made it. I thought it was easier just to not use anyone's name. So when I talked to him, I had several phone conversations with him while writing the book because A, I wanted to verify things. B, I wanted to make sure that he knew what was going to be in the book because it was dark personal stuff. What were the uh, some of the, the grittier Jackie Blackie <laughs> stories in the book that he verified? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I think the, probably the grittiest stuff I wrote about myself during that era, but we went through an abortion together, which was really, really painful. And the thing that's like, now see, I told you I was going to cry. The thing that's, um, been challenging is that 
I've been reading through like journals that I had from that time period. And there are a couple of them that I didn't have while I was writing the book from after we kind of broke up, but we were still sort of back and forth. And there's like things that I completely blocked out. And I have, I thought I had like, oh, such a good memory. And then, I mean, it doesn't matter in terms of like what I wrote in the book. That's fine, whatever. But it's just, it's been hard to sort of confront some of my own behavior in that relationship with him and sort of like the messiness and back and forth, like after we, after I went to rehab and then I was like, we were both kind of dating other people, but we were still in and out of each other's lives up until right when I got pregnant with Atticus. So I'd completely kind of glossed over that in my head. And I think that that's challenging to confront now. You glossed over like, because when we have relationships with people that aren't our primary relationship, we tend to sweep it under the rugs, but obviously there's a relationship there. Yeah. And when you wrote about it, like what was some of the stuff that like toppled you? You mean when I read the stuff in my journals? I mean, I think the the fact that (laughs) that I was still like, that we were still like romantically involved off and on until like right when I got pregnant with Atticus. And so that, I don't know. It just, I, I feel badly that, I mean, and it's not like, I mean, we were on good terms. It's not like we were on, we, we had like years of friendship after that, but I feel badly that I never fully made amends. Like I made an amends to him, but I never fully did. You what, know? what, a real, what kind of amends do you feel like? You I think make? like sort of acknowledging some of the things that I did in our relationship, the constant push and pull on my end that I think that because we relapsed, we both, re- I mean, we actually didn't relapse together. We relapsed separately and then used together. I think that because of the abortion, because of like the drug use, like a lot of the other stuff sort of faded into the background for me because there was so much to unpack <laughs> in that time period without that stuff that now when I look at it, I just wish that I had been less selfish and how less selfish in terms of dragging him back into my life again and again because of what I needed. But I'm sure he needed it too. Yeah. When did you meet him? I met him in 1999. But what was the circumstance? Oh, it was an AA meeting. You met him at a 12-step tw- 12 12 meeting. meeting. Yeah. Or it could, yeah, it could have been an NA meeting. I don't know. And We uh, had mutual friends, so. And you hit it off right away? Yeah, I mean, I thought he was really, I had a boyfriend at the time, but I thought he was really funny and really smart. And I mean, anybody who knew him well will say he was like one of the smartest and funniest fucking people they ever knew. He was so quick. Like, even with all the drugs, he was just, he just was really, really quick. And he remembered things about people. Like, he would meet a friend of mine once, and then we'd see them again, and he'd be like, you know, like, how's your sister Joanna? Or, you know what I mean? He just remembered things about people, no matter who they were. Right. And that was, like, one of his sort of, he had, you know, on, like, the plus side, positive side of, like, his personality, he was, like, he was really nice to people. It didn't matter who they were. And he also had an ability to kind of see through the bullshit and really see people for who they were in like a positive way. And I think he was probably the first boyfriend I had who 
really made me feel like he saw value in me as like an artist and as a writer in a way that like I hadn't experienced before. And I appreciate that, you know. Did you ever get high with him? Yeah. Did you read the book? I, I've. I don't. I don't have a memory. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We went on a horrible. He was who I was with when I smoked crack on an airplane. I think I might I'm have uh, early uh, dementia. Onset dementia. They said the first thing, if you have early onset oh, dementia, no. you lose is words. This happens to me. Yeah. Well, you probably have early onset. You know dementia. why I think too. I was talking with a friend of mine about this recently, like because a lot of people I've the, I've known like four or five people who've died in the last six months, and. I think part of it too, and like some of them, you know, had been sober like 30 years kind of thing. But then I guess part of it is like there are things that damage that maybe we did to our bodies that we don't even, like maybe it's showing up now. And I think about that because of how much heroin I smoked off of tinfoil. Yeah, like smoking tinfoil. Aluminum. It definitely causes dementia. I mean, that's like, they tell you that you can get it from using deodorant that has aluminum in it. So... The fact that I was inhaling fucking aluminum fumes for years. You smoked a lot of off the foil. Yeah. I mean, because when I stopped using a needle, I just, and you know, I mean, unless I was on the East Coast or Chicago, I snorted it. But then here, I mean, here in California. You smoked it off yeah. the foil. Now, what drugs did you do with Black? You remind me. Heroin and crack. What was the first time you got high with him? The first time I got high with him, I had already relapsed. So and you were just, you guys, you were like both in 12-step meetings. We were both in 12-step meetings. Had you both relapsed at the same time? No. So I relapsed before him. This is the kind of story that I, I think is good for the show. <laughs> okay. So I did what I did, which is I relapsed and like hit it. And um, I mean, he had his own apartment, but he was basically living with me. And I'd gone through an abortion that was really, really, it just destroyed me like in a way that I didn't anticipate. And I was not in a good place. So the day before the abortion. And the abortion was with his? Yes. So did you relapse with him before the abortion? No. So how did, where did, I want to hear the story about when you got high with him. So. For the first time. Yeah. Because you met in a, in a room, a recovery Yeah, room. so I had been using for a couple of weeks. And heroin heroin and, and, and No, just heroin. And then I, like a couple weeks in, I kind of thought like he was acting sketchy. And the funny thing about Blackie is that he was a terrible liar. Like, really, he was not good at lying. Like, you knew the second that he was lying. I think, in general, I was a much better liar than he was. And he just wasn't. I mean, so I knew something was off. And I went into the bathroom and, like, looked inside. Like, he had, like, a little, like, mirror thing. And, like, looked inside. Like, you know, like a little toiletry bag with, like, a mirror thing in it. And I looked and it was, like, just sitting right there. And I didn't say anything because I was getting high. But I didn't want to get high with him. So then that went on for about... Why like, didn't you want to get high with him? Because you knew it would be a big problem. Because I think that if... I, I guess it was because I thought I could still somehow control it if, like, nobody knew. <laughs> Do you know well, what Well, that's I mean? how you used a lot, though. Yeah, the majority, I remember of my, that. majority of my using yeah. was like that. So then that went on for about a week. And I was like so irritated the whole time because I mean, which is, I mean, like we talk about like being a hypocrite. I was such a hypocrite, but I was like so annoyed that he was lying to me. 
And then it may have not even been a week. It may have only even been a few days, but let's say a week. So it was about a week. And then I had a day where I was going to score. My dealer wasn't answering. And that was when I went. He had been busted. And his like I almost got sexually assaulted by his cousin. The dealer. The not dealer. Blackie. Yeah, not Blackie. And so when I came home, I knew that when I, I knew that he would come home with drugs. I just like knew it. So he comes back. He comes back. And I said I needed to talk to him. And he's like, yeah, just a minute. And he went into the bathroom and I knew he was like getting high. And I was like, hello. And he's like, just a minute. And I just opened the door. He hadn't locked it. And I grabbed it from him and did it. And he was shocked. And then I told him that I had been using. And I asked, I told him that my dealer got busted and I was sick and I needed him to go get more. Was all this in the book? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds familiar. <laughs> so, so then he went and got more. So then he wa- went and got more and also brought brought home crack and I'd never done crack. I'd done coke and speed and stuff, but I'd never smoked crack. So he brought crack home and that was the first night that I did crack. And was he in that band then? No. Mm -mm. Was he drumming then? He was drumming with like different people. Yeah. I mean, because it was only a couple years out of urge. Oh, the band had ended. The band broke up. Yeah. I don't know anything about that band. Like 97. They're kind of like an LA punk band. Like, what do they sound like? They were uh, like par- big in like sort of the Chicago Indian alternative scene. Their album Saturation like was pretty popular. They had that song like Sister Havana was a big song and Positive Bleeding was a big song. They're probably So it was most, like a 90s alternative band. Most known they really blew up because of their cover of Girl You'll Be a Woman Soon in Pulp Fiction. Oh, that's them. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's very 90s. So they Did he get rich off of that? Yeah. I mean, Blackie did. He did well, yeah. That's amazing. I, it's I mean, I that, don't know. I don't know how much money he made off of it, but it was still he was, you know, still receiving royalties. I swear to God, I've heard that song so many times, and I didn't know it was Urge Overkill. Yeah, ever. Yeah, I just so knew. Weird. I just like knew T-shirts, right? And you know, that's all I know of Urge Overkill. Yeah, if I, you heard <clears throat> a lot of their songs, you would be like, oh, oh yeah. I know that song, right? Like, and there was a song that on both Saturation and um, on Exit the Dragon, which were their two releases on Geffen, on both of those albums, Blackie, I mean, he, he co-wrote, they all wrote all the songs together, like shared song publishing, but there are two songs that he sang, and one of them called Dropout, which was on Saturation, was on that show, My So-Called Life. So that kind of became, like it had, like, you know, because My, my So-Called Life had such like a cult following for sure. years, that song had like a whole other life because of that. Were you an Urge Overkill fan before you not, met him? Not particularly. When I first met him, I didn't even know who he was. Like I didn't, like I was introduced to him. I didn't know he was in that band. Did he have a big penchant for the Kennedys? No, I don't think so. I don't know. I think he just, well, I don't think it was that. I mean, I think he just thought it was like a funny name. <laughs> it is a funny name. It's a good name. It's a good punk rock name. Blackie Onassis. And you know, they were part of like that whole scene they were on you know who's in, in the Chicago. scene because you're educated like me. liz fair you know like her big album exit exit from i didn't Rio. listen to any of that stuff so that so was educate me now. well that was all liz fair liz fair Urge overkill yeah. who else smashing pumpkins yeah i was gonna say smashing and then like pumpkins. you know who else was around then um material issue yeah i don't know 
And then there was like indie stuff like Smog and all like the drag city stuff. But yeah, so they like in 19, like for on the Nevermind tour, Urge Overkill opened for Nirvana and then they toured with Pearl Jam. They did part of like the Rolling Stones Voodoo Lounge tour. They were big. Did Blackie have stories about Kurt Cobain? Yeah, of course. Of course. Did he get high with Kurt Cobain? I don't, I'm not, I, 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 I'm not going to repeat his stories, <laughs> but I think that it's pretty well documented that like a lot of people got high with Blackie. <laughs> right. Let's celebrate Blackie. Tell us more about him. Okay. Well, there's one funny thing is that like, and I'm going to butcher this story, but I remember thinking this was like, he would, you know, it would be really much, much funnier if he was telling the story. But I remember he told a story about like he broke all of his toes when he was a teenager because he didn't have shoes on and he was smoking pot and like the cops were like, I don't know, like came after him and his friend and he was like 14 or 15 and like was running upstairs, but like his foot like hit the stairs and then the next foot hit the stairs and broke all 10 of his toes. Oh boy. So he had like really funny toes. (laughs) Broken. And then actually I was, I talked to uh, Patty Schemmel recently. We, about Blackie, um, you know, after he died, I was having a hard time and talked to her for a long time on the phone. She's been on the show. And she told me that, like, she always think, remembers this time that she thinks it was for Pearl Jam, but they were they were in Europe and Blackie played a whole set with casts on his arms and then filled in for Pearl Jam. I, she thinks it was Pearl Jam on the same tour with casts on. And the funniest thing about that is that the, the reason he had casts on, if I remember this correctly, I think that when they were in Paris, he was dope sick and try, decided he was going to take acid and took acid and jumped out of his hotel room window. No broke, way. That's broke his arms. No, why would wrists. he? But why would he jump out the window? Because he was on acid. I don't know. See, that's a myth. That's an, an, an acid myth that you jump out the window. No, no, no. Not, not myth like, like on a TV show, like PCP stuff. He was like... He just was like crazy. See, no, but there's a there's a classic old story. I think it's from a Dragnet mm-hmm. episode in like 1966, where, yeah. where the cops on Dragnet are in San Francisco, and and some acid casualty jumps off the roof. Yeah, there were lots of. Th- Do you yeah. remember that show White Shadow about like the basketball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there was yeah, one yeah, where yeah. like the, somebody on the basketball team like the, like they do PCP at a party and he's like on the top of the roof going like I can fly, coach. I right, can fly. Right. And he jumps off. <laughs> yeah, I do remember. That. Yeah, no, this was a, this. I mean, I don't know that he thought he could fly, but for what I don't know, he if he was, I can't remember if he was like running from somebody or what he was doing, but he jumped out the window, but then still played the shows. Well, he's a trooper. What about um? And he was with me in that terrible time I smoked crack on, on the an plane. That's yeah. what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. Remind us of that. Story. So, Blackie and I had gone back east to Rhode Island to my dad's for Thanksgiving. And how old were you guys? I was twenty-six, and he was eight years older, so thirty-four. Was your dad like, "Who the fuck is this guy"? No, I mean, I actually, my parents really, really liked him. He was super charismatic. And really nice. And, you know, outside of like us doing drugs together, like everybody really liked him. (laughs) You know, he wasn't like. He was likable. He was likable. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't like all mopey and depressed. He wasn't. He was full of life. Yes. It sounds like he was full of life. He was. And he was real fucking chatty. You know, (laughs) like like me. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So we had been there and we had found a connection in. Providence, so we had been buying. Was the connection in Providence whitey? Yeah. 
So in the yeah, book, I, remember, I didn't I remember, say that. I, remember that. I know, which was so funny because one of the things, the reason, like part of the part of the things that was so funny is that like Blackie was like this like scrawny white guy named Blackie, and Whitey was this like huge black guy named Whitey. <laughs> and had I kept his name in the book, there would have been you know like a little bit more about that. But yeah, so we had drugs on us, and I don't know on the airplane. We were high, I mean, of course, but then I decided it would be a good idea to go to the bathroom and smoke crack. He was passed out, like asleep or whatever, nodded out. And I came back and I kept thinking, I was like back and forth to the bathroom and I thought that the flight attendants knew what I was doing and I was all paranoid. So I woke him up, you know, I'm like, they know, they know. And like, he's like, know what? And I'm like, that I was, you know, like told him that I was smoking crack. And he's like, why would you do that? And then I didn't stop. In the bathroom on the plane. Yes. But no alarm went off? No, I blew it into the... I. This is so gross. I crouched down. Now, this would not work with cigarette smoke, people, so don't tr- don't try this. But I was blowing the smoke into the toilet bowl and then shutting the lid. Why did it work with crack smoke? Because you know how, like, cigarette smoke kind of lingers? Yeah. But crack smoke dissipates pretty quickly. So you take a big hit Heroin of crack. Smoke dissipates you take a big hit of crack. Mm-hmm. Blow it into the toilet, shut the lid. Did you flush it every time? I don't remember, probably. Do you know I have this friend who's a fr- who doesn't go to the bathroom on planes because she's scared that she's going to get sucked, sucked in? Through. I know. And it's also so disgusting. What? Airplane bathrooms are gross. Well, you were, you, were kneeling, you were kneeling. Yeah, I know. It doesn't seem like <laughs> the germaphobe. You at all. It doesn't sound like no, you at all. The amount of time, like disgusting bathrooms, I have done drugs in. Like you know, I mean, desperate. And times. no one knew. I guess not. I thought they did. It's the vi- I the thought I was going to get arrested. Right. I was convinced. I was like, oh, when we get off the plane, like when we got to baggage claim, I'm like, you have to get the bags. And I went and waited outside, and obviously, I did not get arrested. But I was you know, out of my head. And then in the book, I wrote about this that like, you know, he did a really good imitation of me freaking out. And I so wish that we had that recorded because his imitation of me freaking out was probably so much funnier than me telling the story. Right. Well, what else can we do to, to, to honor Blackie's passing? I mean, the thing is, is that, like I said, you know, I've lost a lot of people as all of us have. But I think that like this is probably the hardest one that I've gone through as an adult. And my Because he was your closest person that died. And because you shared a moment of your life too. Because we'd gone through like a lot of things we'd gone through significant things together. And and Blackie Mm -hmm. is a significant drug addict in California. Like all those Mm -hmm. West Coast guys like know him and talk about him and he was like the junkies junkie in yeah. Los Angeles and he would have been a great guest for the show. I know. Well, I had mentioned it to you. I before. know, but I think I thought I didn't know who you were talking about. I, <laughs> I also just try to stay off the phone now. Like I, I was it's like What? No, what I mean is I don't oh, do the show on the phone. Somebody is in person. Yeah, I see what you're like, saying. Yeah, I yeah. don't want to do it. I don't want to do it's it on the, the phone. It's not the same. No. No, I know. It's like you can't do the same stuff. Right. But I regret I mean, it was because I didn't know who Urge Overkill was, probably. Who knows? But Blackie, it sounds like he would have been an insane guest. Oh, his stories were, I mean, so good. Can you think of off the top of your head, and I know it's not your story, so don't don't get angry at me, but can you think off the top of your head, what do you think the greatest Blackie story in your, that pops into your head immediately would be? Well, he, I mean, God, there's so many. He, one of the times that he got arrested... He had left rehab 
and gone to cop downtown. And he's like one of those people that like got arrested constantly. He just always got caught. But he wasn't a good liar. He wasn't good at hiding things. Everybody always knew like what he was up to when he was doing it. You know, he like left. So left, went to cop, then ran from the cops and in running from the cop and, and was on clonopin and hadn't gotten high yet, but was on a ton of clonopin and literally just drove his car straight into a wall. I mean, oh. this isn't really that funny. And knocked out all of his bottom teeth. No, I think that's very funny. <laughs> and so, and then I remember like when he would tell the story, he would be like, yeah, this is why I don't do benzos. <laughs> and I was like, like that was the moral of the story. You I, know? Think that's a, I, think he's, I think he's right. I think that is the moral of the story. And um, I, you know, I can't remember exactly. I have to ask like a mutual friend because he had crazy stories about when they went to Australia. The band. The band. Because they were really big in Australia and they went and had some crazy stories. And people have been sending me some really funny fucking videos of him, like, you know, doing like different talk shows and things like that. And and um, yeah, I mean, I think he had a ton of stories. There's also, have you ever heard that Wesley Willis song, Black Yo? No. Uh, I'm assuming it's about him, though. It is. It's really fucking funny. And Do you, the, and you know who Wesley Willis is? I don't. Oh, my God, Dave. For a music guy, I feel like I need to educate you on a lot of things. Well, I'm trying to get educated. <laughs> I have some blind spots, you know yeah. what I mean? I have serious blind spots. So who's Wesley Willis? So Wesley Willis was a man who was from Chicago, who was an like an artist, and then started, um, I think it was called the Wesley Willis Experience, which was like a punk band. And he was a black guy who had schizophrenia, I think. And But his artwork was amazing. His punk band was kind of amazing. And it had like this cult following. And he loved Blackie. He loved Blackie. So a lot of people knew that song in like the punk scene, whatever. And what was the controversy? And it's a sad story. If you don't want to tell it, you don't have to. But the controversy in, in his obituary. So Because I think that kind of a story is like our audience is you know, we're all at risk. You know, yeah. we sit here, do the show as though we're not at risk, mm -hmm. but we're all at risk. Right. Everybody in the audience who has a history using or drinking, like once you're in that situation, we're all at risk. And I think every death uh, around addiction is a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. And you don't know how what, what the end of him was. No. <clears throat> I mean, I knew that he hadn't been in great shape, and I knew that... You mean he'd been using? Yeah, and in health-wise, I don't think he was doing that well, and, um, and he but was, I don't he know... he was in his 50s. He was 57. Right. Yeah. So tell the story of the... Uh, so, so the LA Times, I got a heads up from somebody who knows an editor at the LA Times that was overseeing the obituaries, or this particular obituary, and knew that they were going to run it she had asked him to hold off for a couple of hours because like his mom hadn't even been informed yet. And when it ran, there was the, the last sentence of the obituary was a quote from one of his former bandmates from an interview, I think last year when they had like this urge overkill reformed, not with him, but like without him and had like an album coming out and somebody had asked something about him. And one of his bandmates had made like an offhand comment that he was a third wheel and that was the last sentence of the obituary. And I thought that was like a really shitty way to end an obituary. Like it was already established. It's like, like how could the writer even do I that? I don't know. And it's not like it was unnecessary. Like you already knew from the paragraph before that they were like, a, you know, that they weren't 
a band anymore and like that it was because you know like a largely due to his drug use and I thought that was a really crappy way to end an obituary so my friend got me the cell phone number for the editor and I sent him a text message and just said that you know a lot of people who because other people brought it up to me as well it upset a lot of people so I asked him if he could just strike that last sentence and they did and so the last sentence got changed to you know he survived by his mom Mary his brother Tim and his sister Anne well I think everybody appreciate I appreciate taking this time, even though I don't know Blackie or Urge Over. Oh, you would have loved him. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. I know. You totally would have loved him. Yeah, I can tell. He's the ideal dopey guy. Just that crashing into the the wall and breaking his teeth. That's my kind of story. There's so, I mean, so many. I I mean, I, yeah. His, His big thing that he used to always make fun of me with is that he said that when I, like, would go to buy drugs that I may as well have, like, driven up, rolled down my window and said, excuse me, do you happen to have any heroin? Like I was asking for Grey Poupon. And I made fun of him because I'm like, he always like changed his voice depending on who he was talking to. And I'm like, oh, that's like really insulting. Like just talk in your normal voice. But he would always made fun of me for that. Well, he he was the (laughs) drug addict chameleon thing. Yes. And you were just like, I'm not doing that. Well, I didn't sound like that. I just didn't change. Pardon my, me. No. <laughs> Would you happen that? No, I was like that. I, I I did both. I did both. Like if I knew it was a drug dealer, I would right. try to like slide in there, you know, what right. I mean? which I'm sure Blackie did too. Right. And then if I didn't know, I would always say the same thing, which I've mentioned on the show before, right. which is I don't want to freak you out, but do you know where I could get any heroin? <laughs> that was my big line. Um, do you have any ask errands around? I'm sure I do. Yeah, hold on really quick. Okay, so I'm going to do an Ask Aaron that I ran on my Substack, but it's it was it's one of those wild questions that I think might be a little entertaining. I mean, it's also kind of sad and fucked up, but but entertaining to the point that like another podcast did a whole episode on the question. Okay. Okay. So the title of this is Ask Aaron, my husband slept with my mom and it gets worse. Nice. Yeah, this is my kind of Ask Aaron. All right. Yeah, it's a good one. So also just like, you know, if anybody's sensitive to like rape, incest, oh boy. just go away. Or if anyone had sex with Stop. anyone's mom, <laughs> yes. send in an email to dopeypodcast yes. at gmail.com. Either thing. All right. Hi, Aaron. This is a complete and utter nightmare. I'm dealing with a situation that I'm unsure I can even put into words. In fact, I don't want even to speak these words, but I feel I'm being forced to because it's being put into my face. I've been married since 2005, and my husband and I have four children. He has a daughter from a previous marriage who just turned 27. We've had issues with our relationship for years. You ready? Yes. He slept with my mother in 2009 when I was pregnant with our son. I didn't find out about the affair, or at least I didn't get confirmation until two or three years after. My intuition and my two-year-old daughter's dream were proven right when I found out from my husband that, yes, he did sleep with my mother. Hold on, though. It's like, the I need to know the ages. The the husband has a 27-year-old daughter, and he slept with this... So is how old is the mother? Well, I don't know how I don't know how old his second wife is. Right. She must be young. She must be younger. Right. But it's like that's a crazy age discrepancy. It's a yeah. lot of different aged people. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. All right. I was absolutely destroyed when I realized that the two people I thought loved me the most were the ones who chose to take my life from me. However, I got myself together, went to therapy, and started taking medication to help with the depression and anxiety. I thought she was gonna have sex with the husband's daughter. <laughs> 
Oh, no, you're not that far off, though. The psychologist told me that it would be best to move on because someone that made a decision to hurt me like that would most likely do it again. Yes. I knew that, but somehow we ended up back together because my husband is a manipulative, narcissistic weirdo, to be honest, and I'm a very forgiving and caring person. So I do blame myself for not thinking straight and being fooled by emotions and lies, and honestly, I hate myself because I feel like I care about people too much. Definitely. I don't want to be a vulnerable and weak or dependent person at all. Right. My husband has slept with two other women that I know of since my mother, including my good friend. She never told me what happened. I know this only because my husband told me three years after it happened. I have no trust in him and we have a love-hate relationship. However, we get along pretty good even though we've lived in the same house for years without much intimacy at all. I'm now in a very bad situation where I'm far away from my family and dependent on him for security, but I will take- She's still with him. Yeah, yeah. But I will take sleeping on the ground over the things I've had to think about in the past two weeks. Okay, now she's like ready to leave. Okay, are you ready for this? No. You're not. You're good. All right. I don't want to say this because the thought of this is worse than that of his. Do you think this is true? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, I've had, because I've had several people write to me about fucked up shit like this. And it came from like an email address with a name, like not, it wasn't anonymous. You know what I mean? I don't want to say this because the thought of this is worse than that of him sleeping with my mom, but I suspect he and his 27 year old daughter have had sexual relations. She is a heroin addict and has told me she enjoys seeing people suffer. I'm completely opposite and could never hurt anyone, especially those I love. She has also slept with her own mother. So it's hard for me to say that this is an, it is an impossible and sick thing that I've come up with in my mind. Oh, God, it gets worse. Recently, I've woken up to my husband having sex with me. Now I'm having issues and have reason to think I have an STD. I haven't slept with anyone, and I know 100% that it would have come from him if I did test positive. I have an appointment coming up, but every minute feels like forever without knowing. I know for sure that my stepdaughter has herpes and probably other sexually transmitted diseases because she sleeps with a lot of different men who aren't clean and has been doing that for years. So most likely, based on my intuition, the hints that my stepdaughter has given me, the energy and reactions that my husband has given me, and the symptoms of an STD that I'm experiencing, they have done something. And I just don't know where even to begin to fix all of this. I'm just wondering if there's someone I can talk to so I can get these horrible thoughts out and maybe get some input on the whole situation. I've been keeping records of things that stand out as suspicious, and the conversations I've had with my husband have been recorded also. What can be done legally in a situation like this? What kind of help is available for me? And what should I be focused on right now as I navigate myself and my children out of this hell? I'm a strong and resilient woman, and I will not give up because I have these four beautiful children who need me, but I feel so scared and alone, and a lot of the time I feel like I'm losing my mind. I know for sure I will need therapy even if this is not true, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get myself better so I can be the best mother to my children because I know they deserve that, and so do I. If you have any input on all of this, I would greatly appreciate any response. Thank you for listening, and I wish you well. Well, I think she should leave the guy. Well, yeah, duh. <laughs> I think she should leave and go to therapy. And is the is are any of her kids having sex with the husband? Well, okay. I mean, yeah, this is like, first of all, I had like a million alarm bells going off that her daughter's dream, her two-year-old daughter probably saw something if she was like, oh, like grandma was in bed with daddy or something. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a dr- the kid didn't I just dream. I find the whole that. story to be potentially far-fetched. It's a I, lot of incest. A lot. I know. Multi-generational incest. But I just don't, I mean, I, I know what you're I, saying. Do you think the husband's a heroin addict too? Probably. I don't know. But what one thing I did point out in my answer to her that I will say is that 
I know she wants to be mad at the stepdaughter, but a 27-year-old heroin addict who she knows already had sex with the mother has been groomed for this situation. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is... This is so effed up on so many levels. Do you know anyone that's ever had sex with their mother or father? Yes. Not not like uh, consensually. Raped. Raped. I mean, I know somebody... But who, she makes it sound like the 27-year-old was just fucking I her underst- parents willy-nilly. Right. But what I'm saying is that that's somebody who's been groomed by their parents. Like, there's not... It's so the fucking pa- like, horrible. Even if it's quote-unquote consensual, the power dynamics of that, there's no way. I mean, there's not, like... It's also, so like, horrible. It's so horrible. Also, like, most young women who find themselves to be heroin addicts probably have some abuse in their background. I'm not going to say all, but I've never met one who didn't. Horrible. And then, like, my other thing is that... So there's a few things. So there's that. And then, first, like, get the hell out because he's going to do something to one of her kids eventually, for sure. Like... Well, I mean, they're in danger. Definitely. And what Everybody, he's, do- what he's doing danger. to her is rape. It's like, you can't like, you know, I mean, yes, you can have rules with your partner where like, yes, it's okay to wake me up. It's okay to like start having sex with me in my sleep. That's different. This is not, this is somebody where she doesn't even want to be intimate with him and she's waking up to him having sex with her. Not cool. Not cool. That's rape. She's got to go. She's got to go. Just go. Just yes. Why are you there? Yes. How is she there? She needs to go. Because people stay stuck in these things because they're so ashamed. So we're going to say you need to leave and you need therapy. And a lawyer, you need to get all, if you've been documenting everything, get all this information to a lawyer. I say get help. Dopey Nation, if you want Aaron to answer any of your questions, send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And I think think we're going to call it there. All right. And Blackie... Rest in peace. Yeah. I wish you had come on the show. I know. There's going to be a celebration of life for him in Chicago on his birthday. I think they're doing something in LA too, but in August, there's going to be something. What's some his big birthday? Thing. August 27th. All right. So we'll look for that. And thank you, Aaron, unlicensed advice columnist, <laughs> elite equestrian, author of Strung Out. Check out Strung Out. It's available in bookstores and Amazon and Everywhere. elsewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you. Thank you. And stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And my shadows get smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadows getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand.
day, pay it any mind. When I leave the busted city far behind, I'll take the high road, however far it winds. Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. And it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and I wanna call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had, and I wanna call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had.